don't still like we don't plan anything still we're not we're not going mm-hmm. in anything um as far as like sometimes we bring topics we'll like study and bring a topic but we don't plan anything as far as like structuring like i don't know structuring anything because that seems that mm-hmm. seems uh, it's, it's not my style at least very different yeah it's just a different podcast for, you know yeah um but yeah and we're not doing this for i don't know what why do why do people people regularly start podcasts i haven't quite figured that out yet i honestly i don't know either to be to be quite honest uh, yeah i, I mean feel like go ahead i mean there's a degree with which people just want to have a space to share their thoughts Mm-hmm. And there's also like a very nice thing about like the permanency of the, like the digital age that like it's somewhere to not just place your thoughts, but maybe even to like preserve them as well. Right. Um, but maybe that's a bit like narcissistic for how people really think. Lots of times I feel like people are just bored. They, you know, want to do something. Um, this is like a great way to engage both like with yourself and with someone else and with maybe like a small community and something like that too yeah totally yeah i mean i i have like i'm always pessimistic about um whenever people are putting themselves forward on the internet like it's Mm. just it inherently kind of activates some kind of skepticism and for me i'm especially pessimistic about it so like i assumed for a long time like i had the mindset that anyone that's trying to advertise themselves or brand themselves is like in some way fraudulent or in some way like a charlatan which is a terrible mindset to have uh, <laughs> and and really I've, I've shifted it now to where I see it more as like well the internet is you know it's really about opportunity and uh, like exposing yourself to as many other minds as you can and, and I'm shifting more into the place to where I'm like I, I want to meet like-minded people so I want to you know, like a lighthouse, I want to express and, and shine out, say, this is what I'm about. Uh, and not trying to shill anything necessarily, but just trying to say that, like, I don't know, I have, I have something to offer. Like I have something I want. Um, and there's tons of people like I want to meet and that probably would want to meet me given what I'm into. Mm. It's more of just like saying, I don't know. It's a weird self-love type of thing almost for me now because it's like saying uh, like I'm just worth it. Like I'm worth at least just like going out, putting my voice out there and that, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. I shouldn't feel guilty about that. Yeah. I mean, if I could be a California progressive and be like, yeah, it's the, it's the white man. In this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, totally. Uh, did you say That's a whole loaded thought, but... <laughs> absolutely yeah and i just have like a brief comment on it but have you seen bo burnett's new special inside on netflix no i see i'm getting i'm getting a lot of ads for it though (laughs) okay so i'm honestly i'm not like i i appreciate bo burnham i think he's a talented person right but i normally am not like necessarily like the biggest fan of like his comedy or something like that you know i mean it's it's nice but uh it's not just my cup of tea exactly i wouldn't like sit down and just watch it all the time but the new special is kind of something different. Uh, it's not like a comedy special. It's, he sort of essentially tries to 
capture the pandemic moment and particularly a lot of the culture that surrounds like the internet and how that generates you know a lot of rot in people's lives especially through the pandemic and uh, like a very kind of dark comedy art thing that's like just him he wrote the whole thing he filmed the whole thing he did like did everything himself and it's um really great but he literally at the very beginning talks about like why am i even talking about this like why am i even sharing all these kinds of things he's like you know maybe like white white men needs to stop seeing not sorry, white men need to stop seeing every political issue as you know the advent of their ability to self-actualize themselves in the world or something like that i'm like fuck <laughs> caught me right there <laughs> dude that's funny it's like a cabin fever type of yeah production yeah nice. that, that makes me think have you seen the movie uh, forgetting sarah marshall um okay so I know the movie, it's been a long time i think i think i've seen it but it's been a long long time so i don't really remember much. okay well it's just kind of funny because like the main character like the premise of kind of his personal i don't know revolution and redemption is that mm-hmm. he's he's like writing this this vampire puppet musical that he just like has to bring to life and he's like a, he he does like music for tv shows and movies but he loves like mm. theater and then the movie coincides with him like yeah making this this puppet like or muppet vampire musical and people like it and i was thinking about this the other day and i was like i wonder if there's a real market for that online like if someone could, <laughs> could pull that off like obviously for that movie it was like a joke but we're kind of reaching those levels of just like clown world mm. <laughs> on the internet that it's like, that's probably, that's probably something that a lot of people want to see. Yeah. I mean, I'm, there's definitely, there was Harry Potter puppet pals, you know, that was a big thing a yeah, decade I ago. I didn't hear about that one. <laughs> yeah. But you know, outside of that, I'm not sure I've really seen much puppet content on, on the internet, but uh, I'm sure it's there. I'm sure people are doing it. Yeah. But, it's more yeah, of the, I, I, the idea that like you can, you can take the most niche thing and you can find people on the internet that'll be into it as long as you do it at a high, high quality, I guess. I don't even think you need that to be quite honest with the internet. (laughs) I think you can find the most niche thing you want. And like, there's a community somewhere. Kind of one of the interesting things about the internet. It's kind of, I think more broadly, about I think about the internet and the way that it's maybe slightly broken humanity um, and I have a kind of pessimistic output or outlook on um, how and exactly the fact that it has broken it um, and I don't necessarily want to like say people should be excluded or should be able to find communities or these kinds of things but like you know human beings for a long time have been social creatures and we sort of do a little bit of like you know, isolation and shunning in our communities. It's somewhat natural. You know, if someone just has bad ideas, yeah, exactly. But even tribalism of ideas in society as cities and villages and these kinds of things developed, you know, someone with like bad ideas, you just sort of don't hang out with or you don't really communicate with. You kind of, they kind of get pushed away. And that's like, you know, I don't necessarily think that everybody should be isolated or that they should be isolated just because of their bad ideas. They deserve somehow to, to feel isolated. So I don't want to say that, you know, I think people deserve to feel comfort and um, to have happy lives and all these other things. But um, 
what the internet has done is it has removed, I think, a lot of that social pressure from a lot of more isolate communities. Um, and it's kind of resulted in the fact that there, there's now hundreds or thousands or even more communities for every niche little topic. And not all of those topics are actually good or productive thoughts and are things that you really should be thinking, right? Like in an ideal world, the shunning mechanism is, is a restitution mechanism where the, you, know, you go, oh, hey, this is bad. So like, oh, you should feel maybe that or something and you recognize that and maybe your, your thoughts change somehow or something like that. And then you're able to kind of reintegrate yourself back into society um, as a way to try to help society be healthy and, and you know, be productive. But I mean, productive is... Well, and what, what you're basically saying is that the social, almost the social signals and the social press pressures should be somehow conducive with reality or conducive uh, with how we're surviving and how we're pushing forward. And in the internet, you can go off in a million directions and you can just silo yourself in a filter bubble. And then you're not really getting feedback from reality. Everyone's just like, you know, they're, they're abstracting more and more onto their internet interactions and in kind of virtual realities. And yeah, but I mean, there, there is also definitely that occurring. And I think that's with like social media and the advent of like Silicon Valley, all these kinds of things we've seen that. But even kind of before then, um, I mean, you know, people with conspiracy theories and all sorts of stuff have always existed, of course. Um, but like, you know, people who are like Holocaust deniers or, um, you know, uh, anti-vaccination uh, and these kinds of things, um, I, they, they tend to spread very particularly in the internet. And they don't spread in normal society, right? You can't just go around to your local hangout spot and just start chatting about these ideas. Most of the time, you either know that they are agreeing with you. And so then you're going to talk about it, or you just don't talk about those kinds of ideas, right? Because they're, they're kind of usually a little strange, right? <laughs> yeah. Most people don't react well um, to talking about those topics, right? Um, but so there's something about the internet as like a delivery mechanism to where you can get way more mind viruses, basically. Mm -hmm. Like there's, mm -hmm. yeah, the way that information spreads on the, on the internet, like the, the qualities that make it fit on the internet, uh, that make it spread well are not necessarily the same qualities that, um, you know, make something spread naturally in the real world. Like if you have something in the real world that you think of as like really virally spreading ideas, that's mostly coming from the media or advertisement or, you know, and of course technology is that new boon. And then before, maybe 200 years ago, it was a book or something like that, like a novel, a story. But now it's like, it's so frictionless that you can have Harambe can take over everyone's like mind in a week's time or something like that or just whatever meme of the week pops up and then people forget about it and so exactly it's like I, a little I definitely think it's interesting and uh, i spent a lot of time thinking about social media so i know a lot of the reason because of this is how they design the algorithms to basically optimize for engagement but but even beyond that like you're saying the internet and like i'm not sure if it's the internet inherently but rather like how we're leveraging it. Um, I think there might be something kind of intrinsic though to the internet because it just simply connects people's ideas, right? But I think in a, in a very beautiful and simple idea of what the internet is, that, that is kind of what it is and how it shapes and affects society. The problem is not everyone has good ideas. And that's, I think 
it's harsh to say that, but I think maybe all of us could probably agree that if we're going to be critical, like some people just have bad ideas, right? And yeah. finding a community to support you in that isn't always going to be good for you or society more broadly. Um, so I think the internet inherently can exacerbate the like generation and propagation of bad ideas in a human society um, versus what it would, would have been without that. Yeah. Like, for example, if, you know, like one person with one bad idea is in, you know, Cincinnati, Ohio or something like that. And then one other person's, you know, somewhere in Los Angeles, California, you know, they would never meet. Right. They would never be able to reverberate their ideas and share them. But just having the, the, the breadth of which hundreds of millions or billions of people are connected through, you know, anybody can find anybody or anything um, and build a community. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, it's a double-edged sword and this is how technology always feels is it comes with like great advantages and new things that we can do, but it also comes to the downside, which some, sometimes the downside is just simply that you're giving access to a lot of leverage or capability to an increasing number of parties in which a few of them might be corrupt and might try and ruin it for everyone else or use it against everyone else. Mm -hmm. And so but I'm a big fan of, you know, liberating people and giving power to many individuals and trying to spread out um, people's access to, to new things and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, of course. But the problem is then that they, like, first of all, a similar kind of thing occurs in the internet as well, where like people still do the social shunning away from major platforms and then they push them off to some other platform, like, you know, the advent of Parler and, and you know, whatever else has gone on in the internet's history. I'm sure there's a, a thousand examples to pull up. Um, but I don't know. Sorry, I kind of lost my train of thought. There. <laughs> <laughs> no, totally. I mean, it's it's something that's like it's come onto us so fast as a species, and we're just like totally swept away. Like we're not adapting our thinking to it. Like seemingly, the Enlightenment and over not just the Enlightenment, but just over the course of humanity, we've kind of carved out different ways of of basically having an evolution of ideas and sorting out good ideas from bad ideas. And that's what the institution of ed, you know, education and all of that's supposed to be in science. And so we have pretty good ways of doing that. But in this internet, in the virtual world, it's just like, it's so fast moving. And mm -hmm. the way that our brains are set up, it's just, we can't react to it in, with the same due diligence that yeah. maybe we can in the real world with, you know, if our environment, like if your physical environment is changing around you, you, you probably have a lot more natural inclinations and tendencies to tune into that as a human versus like your digital environment is surrounding you. And there's all sorts of mind viruses and ads and manipulation happening in the background. And you're just kind of swept away by it. I mean, it's, it's yeah. too much to keep up with too much bandwidth basically, or yeah. we'll and have enough bandwidth. And not to mention the way that, you know, our brains, beautiful, uh, amazing meat sack computers that they are, um, you know, whether you think the mind resides exactly in it or not, but we, it's certainly there is interplay and the brain itself learns habits and it changes and it adapts itself. And that affects the way you, you feel and exant in the world through your mind. Right. And the internet, like people are generally very poor about being reflective on uh, how 
what they're engaging with is actually affecting them, right? Self-reflection is difficult, especially to be objective uh, or to be honest, almost impossible, right? Um, and I, I think a lot of people don't even realize, they're just like, oh, I'm just getting on Facebook, right? I'm just kind of getting on TikTok or something like that. And not even whether you engage with the right content or the wrong content, which we've already been discussing, it's you know, a huge challenge when you access the internet. But the most accessible content that you will see, you know, your Facebook feed and TikTok or Instagram are all designed to somehow shift the way we engage with media, um, or they're different at least than, than very old, very long-standing traditional methods of engaging with media. Uh, and then your mind itself adapts and responds, right? So like, <laughs> like the classic case, for example, is the shortening of attention span, um, as well as I think like the obsession with, um, um, obsession is probably the wrong word but I, the, the prevalence of instant gratification in, in the American culture right now, right? I would um, say obsession. <laughs> well, I obsession, would push it that far. Well, I just don't know that I want to agree that everyone is you know, necessarily obsessed yeah. with it, but certainly so many people just kind of begin to live there every single day considering only the next set of gratification, right? I mean, how many memes came through the internet on the pandemic of like, how am I going to get my dopamine today? You know, <laughs> am I going to read a book or am I going <laughs> to like, like, you know, am I going to go for a walk? Maybe, uh, maybe I'm just going to sit at my desk and watch TV or something like that. And you like list all the different ways. It's like, ah, oh, yeah, check this one. That's how I get my dopamine today. And then like you wake up again, you're like, all right, which one am I going to pick tomorrow? You know, and like, that's, suddenly becomes your way you experience life is just like, how am I getting this next small amount of satisfaction? And, um, and, you know, ultimately in the long run, it becomes, I think, extremely dissatisfying and you become, you know, very unhappy in a way that's not just about happiness, that this is like my life may or may not be losing meaning, right? Because <laughs> you only see the next 12 hours and, you know, maybe the next 12 hours aren't that important. And so there isn't much meaning in the next 12 hours, whether you get the dopamine hit or not. Um, and building meaning in, in one's life is, is difficult. And I think, you know, the internet and the way the, the media changes it um, continues to make it more and more difficult. Yeah, no, I, to I totally agree with all of that. And, you know, this, uh, oh man, this, this sparks so many thoughts for me. And maybe we need to have a future episode just just about this because I spend all I've spent not as much lately, but spent a lot of time thinking about this and kind of studying this and trying to build actually technology that helps people think about this. Um, mm. And this, this actually goes back years. Uh, I, I don't know if you remember this interaction, but probably four years ago, I, mm -hmm. I asked you to like go out to coffee with me to help me with something. Uh, mm -hmm. because I had, even though I, I did not know how to code at all, I had absolutely no experience of software. I had this idea, um, that I wanted to build an app and I kind of had a few ideas around it. And like, we sat down at Starbucks and you oh, yes, I, out, I remember. <laughs> yeah. Okay. You wrote out like, here's what a front end is. Here's what a back end is. I'd never heard of that before. I was like, wow, that makes sense. And you kind of told me like, you know, here's, here's probably what you'd have to do. If you're making a web app, you might have to host it on Amazon. Uh, you know, like here's the various languages you'd have to do to build this stuff. 
anyway, uh, this was, yeah, this must've been four years ago, but you know, the idea I had was a seedling, a little seedling of an idea that was just some friction that I had felt around social media years ago. It kind of has to do with this. It, it was my like distaste for how I was being tracked, the kind of what it meant to have that kind of information against me and like how much you could really do with that information. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I had the idea that like, I would love to have a personal dashboard that I have, no one else has, that shows me all of my online information and lets me use the same machine learning and AI analysis that big companies use against me to be able to use it on myself so that I have, I have the greatest point of intelligence. That was kind of, that wasn't, I wouldn't have been able to put it quite into those words at that time, but that was the seedling of the idea and kind of what I worked on some at the beginning of this year and at the end of last year, Mm -hmm. two projects I had. Um, One was called FB Explorer, which was only for Facebook. And the next one was called Reclaim. Um, Yeah. And I talk about this on our episode called All of Our Failed Projects. So (laughs) if you want to know the outcome of that, I mean, not that it's uh, (laughs) failed, like I have an alpha prototype that like works and does a few stuff, but it's like, it's marooned. It's something that I had to put down and like, I hope Mm -hmm. to pick it up again. But yeah, like this is an area of like in a great interest for me and one that I think is really underrated and, and kind of that I think people are just now starting to wake up to the gravity of the situation we're in as far as the asymmetry of information mm-hmm. and the kind of information environments that we've been put into. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, like you're saying, I, I think it's insight and reflection are things that we have to take back. An important thing for that is just like information and data. And if I can know some hard facts about myself and how I've interacted with information over the last few years or whatever, you know, that gives me a lot of, a lot of traction for reflection and insight mm-hmm. to hopefully mm-hmm. myself. But in the end, it falls down on the individual to even care in the first place. And that I think a lot of people just won't care. Yeah. I mean, finding things to care about and also especially very big things very heavy things like that like uh, dealing with your own information on the internet the privacy issues or um, your ability to access what somebody can understand about you from what you put out there even understanding what you are putting out there as with the tools you engage with it's just so difficult for an average person right Uh, there's no way that you know a normal person could just expect with a, a lack of expertise to be able to understand that because the, the true scope of like the amount of data, tr- the true scope of what is being collected is, is honestly enormous. Right. And it, it's hard to put even in your own head, if you understand it, that's why we build these computers who can compute simple computations, you know, many, many times faster than us, but we build them to, to process and bulk and chunk together all of this information that, you know, you could even put it in a folder and give it to a person and they'd be going, how do I do anything useful with this? You know? (laughs) Yeah. And that was exactly like my project was like, okay, I've got this 20 gig folder. Now, how do I parse it? How do I put it? How do I display this information? Cause that's exactly what I'm thinking is like the layman will never do this. They'll never care to the extent that I've cared or try to think about what questions can be asked. Uh, And so, yeah, I mean, I, I believe 
whether I have any part of it or not, I believe that these tools will exist at some point. I think they, they should be open source. Um, and yeah, I think that most people won't care, <laughs> but <laughs> you know, like it's, but for the subset that do care, like it's a tool for, it's a tool for the individual. And like, those are things I'm really passionate about is, you know, like you're talking about access and opportunity, like the opportunity truly for any individual who wants to better themselves, better their mind, uh, better their position, whatever, like that they can have access to those tools with the lowest friction through computers, you know, mm-hmm. that's just, um, that's, that's a net good in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I think it definitely has the potential to be good. And, and, you know, this kind of makes me think of uh, what Edward Snowden said about the, uh, the government tracking programs um, through, um, sorry, I can't call the moment, which, whatever organization, NSA, sorry, thank you, NSA. NSA, yes. So as he was talking about the government tracking programs, the NSA, um, in the end of something. Okay, you can just like cut out all of my rambling as I'm trying to pull up this memory, but anyway. So no, I'm, no, you're cool. Snowden. Um, he, he basically said, um, I don't think what is actually occurring at the NSA um, right now, when, you know, back when he was doing this in 2011, 2010 time, is actually harmful to most individual Americans, right? Like, mm-hmm. it's very rare that you actually come on the, the wrong side of that and that what happens will ever significantly affect your life in, in any way. Um, and there's probably been, you know, whole people that have had their lives, you know, maybe, maybe briefly, but in, in the scope of the NSA and never have been affected by it in any significant, meaningful way. Right. But the problem is just because you can say that it isn't being used like that, right. doesn't mean that it can't be used in a, in a very harmful, very negative way. Um, and I think most people don't understand quite the depth of, um, of like what, what composes them as a person. Right. That's first of all, hard thing for anybody to understand themselves generally but you know a lot of your traits and what makes you a person are more computable than you probably think they are from the data that comes out right and there's a certain way in which that i'm pretty sure that if google tried they could know almost my entire being you know what i mean like like they could know me deeply and intimately from just the information that i've accidentally given them you know um, and, I, and I think most people aren't aware of a the fact that, that that is essentially what is possible from the information and then that it could be, um, you know, that that could be dangerous in the future. There could be a very, very different future um, ahead of the world. Uh, but I also, you know, to a degree, I'm, you know, how much can you really change about it also now? <laughs> um, yeah. You can try to give tools to help people understand their information. I think that's a like an awesome goal. Um, but, you know, if a certain person wants to not be tracked, you have to jump through a thousand hoops in order to um, do that successfully. Um, okay. And most of us, the ship has already sailed. We've already been not doing that for a decade and it, it's essentially too late, you know? Mm-hmm. I, I actually, we, we definitely need to have another talk about this because I, I like your thinking and, I don't totally agree with that final point though. I think the ship is sailing, but I don't think the ship is sailed. Um, like, I think that there is, 
I think that there are ways basically to keep the current ship of metadata that's all of you and that defines you and your personhood that, you know, Google could seemingly discover whatever they want. I think that ship is sailing, but I think that there's a way that people can recognize what that is and how that's connected and then only begin to invest the rest of their life's data or information into areas that they control. So I, I think that that is probably possible to change the way you engage with these tools in order um, in reflection of what is actually coming out once you understand it. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly you can't go back to being like, you can't ask the question, should we have this, right? That, that, that's maybe the thing I'm saying about yeah. the ship has sailed. You can't, you can't ask the question, should we have this or should we not have this? Because it, it's too late. It, we have it. Mm-hmm. it. It is here. Big data is here um, and it will be here uh, and it's not going anywhere. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And that's why I always err on the side of just like build tools, you know, mm-hmm. like build and try and, and do something. And if it works, it will work and people will use it. And if it's useful, if it's valuable, people will use it. And so, yeah, I, I, I totally agree. Mm-hmm. But um, as much as I can talk about everything to do with computing and AI and all that, uh, your particular expertise is, I don't even really know what to say, biotechnology, I guess. And bioengineering is what I'm doing my uh, studies in. Yeah. Okay. Although my field of bioengineering is synthetic biology. Synthetic biology. Okay. Uh-huh. So where, where are you in the entire, you know, education hierarchy? You had your undergraduate four years, which, what did you do for that? Yeah, so my undergraduate, uh, I did a bachelor's of science in biomedical engineering at UCO um, in Oklahoma. Uh, And then I took, you know, one little gap year uh, and then just moved straight into a PhD program um, applying directly. Um, And now I'm here at UCSD in my second year um, as a PhD student in bioengineering. Just getting started on my PhD, I feel like, even as a second year, but, you know. Nice. I, I didn't, didn't know I, you skipped the master's. I thought you got a master's for some reason. Yeah. So it's not uncommon in the sciences um, to just apply directly to PhDs. Um, and then you can actually get the master's along the way. Although it's possible that I won't get a master's. Um, I have to take a few more courses and do some other small things if I want to get my master's degree. I'm basically almost there. Um, but it doesn't really matter because you're in the PhD program. Um, so as long as you complete the program, you're going to have the PhD at the end and nobody cares if you have a master's degree or not. Essentially, it's probably best understood as like insurance for a PhD student. Um, if you are applying to a PhD and you're trying to go directly. Um, okay. That being said, many people do masters along the way. And there's many, many reasons why you would like it can be a, a good stepping um, stone to try to get to um, a, a place, a particular place that you want to, or a particular field, um, some way to, to learn and grow, or just to build more um, accreditation um, as you know, onerous as that is and unnecessary as it is. Unfortunately, you know, sometimes people um, pedigree does matter in the academic world, right? So if people are aiming for a PhD, um, you know, you can build pedigree and, and all that kind of stuff by trying to, to go for a master and stuff like that. Um, but if you don't have to, in the sciences, I would say there's really no reason that you need to. 
Um, and you can kind of just go straight for the PhD and then it's much better because if, even if you do the master's, you'll be usually funded along the way. So, you, you know, versus most master's degrees, you know, you're paying for the kind of the whole time. Yeah, no, that's, that, that's good. That makes sense. I mean, for, for what you're doing specifically, you kind of have to take the academic route, like there's mm-hmm. no alternatives. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm yeah, lucky yeah. for me for and for my personality type. I'm lucky that for software there were alternatives, and I I invested in those because I dropped out of high school and dropped out of community college. So, quite. I mean, quiet. there's there is a whole underground sect of bioengineers or synthetic biologists who call themselves biohackers right <laughs> and those yeah. people you know so you know you don't have to do it uh this way that being said um a lot of the biohacker dream is to like re-envision silicon valley for biology and like you know i don't necessarily support even that notion right you know what i mean <laughs> yeah no that's that's interesting uh so you're so you're taking you're taking the tried and true path yeah it definitely um works well for me you can uh i also kind of maybe someday would like to be at a university you know i i do kind of enjoy um teaching i've always kind of enjoyed teaching um growing up just doing tutoring or other small things like that um and you know i i think being a phd um professor at a university somewhere offers a lot of dynamic opportunities uh in a career because you can be a researcher you can be a teacher, you can be an administrator, and you can be a mentor to graduate students. Um, so there are many different roles. Um, and that's a the diversity of that is something that um, I kind of want in my career, something that I, I don't necessarily have to always be pigeonholed down into one little thing. Um, and also, I think it's just, it's nice to be able to, to, to still feel your way out into your career, right? Rather than, you know, many people, any, any job is a job at the end of the day. And those be working, but many people think that their career is going to be something they study, they spend all of this time and all of this money and all of this energy working towards that. And then they achieve it and they get there and they go, oh, this isn't exactly what I wanted. Um, and so, you know, having a career that offers you some flexibility in what you're doing on a day to day basis, you know, can help solve any issues like that that may come up. No, totally. That that makes sense. And like, I mean, I respect for you, you, like, I kind of have, uh, I think academia can be like kind of the opposite of what you're describing a lot of times, like you're talking about opportunities and research and new things and dynamic, but a lot of times academia for, for other subjects is just, it drills all into this same place and there's very few opportunities, uh, but biotech and, and biology uh, in general is just such a growing there, there's a lot of progress being made there's a lot of traction right now it's the hot really tech technology or science to be studying mm-hmm. um, where if you go to like theoretical physics it's not as bustling <laughs> well yeah and, and to be fair there's kind of been this long trajectory of the development of these scientific fields through the 20th century right so theoretical physics you know really hit its I mean, it's been its heyday for a long time, but um, it, it really, yeah. But basically modern physics was all developed, you know, kind of 
I'm not a physicist, so I don't have the exact physics history memorized, but it's between like 1860 and like 1920s, right? 1920s is when you start seeing, or 1910s is when you see like Einstein and stuff like that yeah. show up. Um, and then after that, things really kind of slowed down and the field kind of didn't progress so much. Um, but what followed then after the advent of theoretical physics was the development of chemistry. Uh, and in the 1930s and uh, 1940s, I mean, chemistry again was also starting way, way, way earlier on with the alchemists. And, yeah. Um, but it really sort of hit its big heyday. It started like figuring out the, the periodic table and, you know, the chemistry that you and I would learn in a high school classroom or something like that was all kind of developed. Then people were able to synthesize drugs and um, new ways. You kind of had the pharma boom kind of show up right then as well. Um, and the advent of, you know, people synthesizing all sorts of chemicals, you know, and then, and then in the 1960s, you know, people taking all of the random chemicals that um, <laughs> the chemists would synthesize and, you know, like, that's, you know, like the notorious thing of like, oh, now we can synthesize this, you know, is it, is it going to do something strange in my brain? I don't know. Like, let's try it, you know? Hell um, yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, so that happened in kind of the 1960s and like that. And really um, biology, most people don't kind of realize is extremely new. It, it basically follows then after chemistry. Once we've kind of developed a, a lot of these chemistry techniques and we're really good at figuring out what molecules are and how they um, work, then um, that's when people really started like digging down into biology beyond the level of like, oh, I'm a plant or you're a, you're a mouse or something like that. And we okay. really started trying to figure out how is it working and how is it, not, I'm not just going to categorize these things. I'm not just going to, describe how they interact. And I'm not just going to study the ways that they interact in big, broader systems, but even to like a fundamental level from, from the physics um, and the chemistry, how do, how do they actually work um, themselves? Okay. So, so would you say that like, we gained enough insight into physics that we had a good set of first principles from physics. And from those first principles, we were able to build on top of it, a greater understanding of chemistry and build principles for chemistry. And then from there, once we understand the fundamental particles, where they become molecules, compounds, interact with each other. And then the more abstracted version of that is life. It's biology, it's cells. So mm -hmm. can you kind of like, is it kind of like building on each other in layers like that? Yeah, exactly. And probably the best way to understand it is um, just purely the number of interacting elements in a system, right? So if you just think about, theoretical physics and, and I'll just kind of maybe abstract the development of these things to just make a nice pedagogical hierarchy. Um, but in physics, you can talk about the interaction of two fundamental particles, you know, just one electron and one positron or one electron and one other electron, even things that, you know, may or may not be particles like photons. So there's like an electron and a photon can like do things on its own. And you're just talking about very simple elements. Um, and in physics, they, they developed these systems by basically isolating as much of just that interaction as they could um, and working just with those kind of few elements to try to understand them. You kind of think of chemistry then um, and even just like a, a simple organic molecule, you're still talking about, you know, dozens of atoms um, and yeah. each atom is composed of, you know, protons and neutrons uh, and electrons, right? And then the way that the electrons distribute themselves around the molecule is actually like extremely complicated. Um, the ways that they shift once they start interacting in molecules. Um, and so you just, even once you try to take those fundamental principles of two electrons interacting, it becomes very, very challenging once you have 
40 interacting, right? Yeah. Uh, and if you look at like physical chemistry or something like that, um, then if you try to kind of keep going onto biology, it, molecular biology, um, and really maybe like a physical biology, if there's such a thing, is essentially that. But then again, on steroids, it's like the same exact thing where you have then 40 um, electrons interacting into like a molecule, you get 40 molecules interacting into a cell or system. Mm-hmm. Except the, the problem is that the jump between chemistry and biology is actually extraordinarily large. So that concept of 40 severely underestimates the difficulty with which biology jumps up in complexity. It's, you're talking about thousands of proteins, all of which do their own thing. You know, a whole a separate giant DNA molecule that's trying to um, guide the whole thing somehow, some way. And then there's, you know, hundreds or dozens, every single gene that produces a protein, right? and there's, again, thousands of them, uh, and even the simplest cell, um, has dozens of interacting elements all, all along the different DNA part that come from all other different kinds of proteins. So then if you try to like start imagining how am I going to stick all of these things together, it, it becomes too much for even a mind to, to even hold all in at once. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, that makes that's why. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, and that's why I think biology has become kind of this big hot topic and why it's expanded so much. It's actually, people colloquially say uh, that biology is like 10 times as big of a field in science as any other field in science. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's because that jump in complexity is so difficult that it's, we're, we're very poor at understanding it. It's our techniques and our ability to, to do that and to grasp that and to, and to describe it. Even if you assume that we've perfectly understood chemistry and physics. And so then you just write down enough equations, right? The, the number of equations you would have to write down is, is an impossibility. Um, and so it, it, we, it takes very, very dedicated people with very precise understandings and like very novel ways of thinking, right? You have to be very creative to be able to try to understand um, how these things work because we need better paradigms. We need better tools um, and techniques to think about these systems. So, such that you can't just take the pure physics and biology or physics and chemistry principles because um, it, it's too complex. And so you need something else to try to um, help you work with these systems. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And um, it kind of makes sense that if you were just looking at, uh, if you were just studying biology, just at face value, you have mm-hmm. no underpinnings of physics or chemistry, you know, to try and ascribe meaning to the complexity of interactions that were happening, it would just be so, it would be impossible. It would be so difficult to just try and look at it and try and guess what's happening underneath, why, what's making it happen. So you mm-hmm. start from the bottom, like you're saying, you start with two particles, the most, just you zoom in as far as you can and you find the most binary thing. Like what happens when this one thing interacts with this one thing and then you figure out like here's the three different ways they interact and then mm-hmm. okay, what about this thing and this thing and then this process of just boring iteration and basically data capture we build mm-hmm. up you know some kind of a mental map and we're able to abstract them build on top of it etc cetera, etc cetera. Mm-hmm. like as you're talking about how much more complex this is this is something i know about like computational physics to computational chemistry to computational biology um, one of my coworkers used to do com- computational chemistry. 
-hmm. and he's he's showing me some of the code he wrote in python and how he you know is like i can't even i can't even repeat what what he's talking about but you know they simulate just pools of different chemicals and how they'll interact Mm -hmm. they have simulations where they can simulate almost an entire solar system see how do the gases react or how does a star get created over you know hundreds of billions of years or something like that and then black hole you know they can take the complexity of all of that information and they can put it into your computer simulation yeah yeah you then jump up to biology and biology is such a jump for the amount of number like you're jumping up like eight orders of magnitude or something for just yeah. the amount of interacting particles and compounds and cells and and like you're talking about dna and so it's such a huge like it's kind of known in computational biology it's just like you can hardly do anything right now like you can you can compute like a few like it i don't know like a few hundred cells or something like that like Mm -hmm. fully with with the resolution that goes down to like the physics level um so yeah, it's, it's a lot more complicated than I think people realize. And that's kind of why you're saying it's like a 10x bigger field than people realize it is because there's just so much damn information packed in each thing. Exactly. So like to play off your example of the universe, right, even though that is you have, you know, many times more interacting elements than they will ever be in a cell or something like that. How can you describe it so well? And it's because fundamentally. Mentally, the, the way that the universe, you know, you can simulate it and the, the, the things that drive it are the fundamental forces, right? So you got like four fundamental forces, maybe more, maybe less. Um, I don't know exactly how the theoretical um, and computational physicists do this. But um, predominantly, you're just interacting with mass particles, right? So even though there are so many different kinds of them, all these things, you just, you can describe them as just kind of masses interacting with like gravity or something like that. And that becomes suddenly you've abstracted the, the complex thing into something very simple that only has a few interactions. And that happens when to, to describe the behavior well. It doesn't describe it ex- exactly. It's, it's not telling you that following these mathematical principles, putting them in a computer, and then that's how the universe develops, but rather that those tools can really help you understand how um, these things do form in the real world um, without needing all of the necessary complication. Um, but that just isn't possible when you talk to a cell. You still need hundreds of metabolites, uh, like little tiny molecules, to be describing their behavior. I mean, you need thousands of proteins. You need the genome and all that kind of stuff. And then each one of the, there's another big fundamental problem in biology, which is um, the fact that the, the number of interacting elements of each element, right? So how many proteins are there on average of, say, protein A or something like that? Um, that can actually be very small in biology, like say like 10 proteins per cell or something like that. And then of course on the genome, the gene that it interacts, that the protein maybe interacts with, if it's like a, if it's regulating the genome somehow, um, there's only one gene element, right? right on the genome, well, maybe depending on <laughs> what kind of cell you have, but, um, essentially you're talking about like 10 things interacting with one thing in, in a giant bubble where basically they're all just sort of moving around randomly. And that generates just like you just think about that immediately it's such a random chance that that the two things meet Uh, and so then the stochasticity that underlies all of this can actually be so challenging that once if you just try to model it by naively modeling that stochasticity a lot of times the models that come out are just completely useless because they don't really tell you anything functional other than the fact that noise dominates 
anything you're trying to understand about the system. <laughs> yeah. No, totally. That's yeah. I, I wasn't even thinking about the genome <laughs> when I was thinking about cells. I was like, yeah, maybe like we have supercomputers that can like simulate a few hundred cells, but then like you're describing like what genes affect what proteins and how do they interact and what is even like the ratio to them or the chances. Like if you, if you imagine trying to codify all of that, or even can you codify it? Can you look at it and examine it and truly understand the, uh, all of the interactions that, you know, particular protein or combinations of these, these things can happen. Um, it's really jarring. And you think about like, <laughs> I love to think how nature, how nature built this and just grinded it out, you know, depending mm -hmm. on what you believe nature, God, love, whoever built it, I don't care. But, you know, mm -hmm. like, <laughs> it's just this grinding billions of years where every experiment's being tried. If you imagine like if the whole, like if all 8 billion humans were like all just curious, reckless scientists and technologists, and mm -hmm. we're just trying reckless experiments all the time, most of them failing and blowing up and killing and all of that. And just like, but the amount of progress you'd make in the, like the unintuitive systems that you would build through that process, like that's what nature has done at a, you know, infinity X scale than what we yeah, did. Exactly. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, I, I have, I have a lot of respect for just the complexity. I mean, me and Josh talk about this all the time, just, I don't know, respect nature, have humility to nature. Cause it's so much, it's so much more than we can ever understand. And it's yeah. integrated in everything that we do. It is an astounding and beautiful mother that has made life its own beautiful thing. Yeah. Um, and honestly, even, even just being able to like know that these things are occurring under very simple biological systems in like a single cell system, like on our microscope, if you're looking at a couple of bacteria interacting, just imagining that, that that complexity is occurring inside of each one is beyond something that, you know, you could ever hope to necessarily like generate of your own, at least right now. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but that's actually what attracted me to synthetic biology um, and a kind of out of bioengineering. Um, so while the umbrella of what fits under synthetic biology is big and has been growing um, expansively <laughs> for a long time, uh, generally it's sort of like the concept of designing new function in biology or rather um, designing biology. Um, and, I, you know, new function being like saying just like some subset of the biology, some particular aspect, um, yeah. trying to be humble in my, our ambitions. Um, but the, the faculty member I work with, um, Jeff Hasty, uh, he sort of, uh, worked for a long time with a lot of the people who, um, founded the field. And I mean, he himself was kind of a part of that, um, very fundamentally as well. And, and the original ambitions were looking at biology and thinking about these systems where they were, you know, we were understanding that um, they were kind of this complex layer and all these other things, but there were certain parts that were well-described. Being able to at least understand the central dogma of biology, you know, DNA to RNA to protein and, and some other kind of core elements led to an understanding of biology that they said, maybe we can try to design some things. And the original goal essentially of synthetic biology was, was then to, to build a set of tools, um, like engineering tools, um, like mechanical engineers have when they try to design an airplane to try to look at biology. Can you, 
can you actually write down equations that mean something in biology so that if I wanted to get some sort of biological function response, something, um, I can do that just, you know, by design rather than by accident or by trial and error or anything else. Um, and so I, I, that's what I really love about what I'm doing is essentially, you know, taking some very small part in that process. Uh, yeah, totally. That's, I mean, I think that this way of thinking about biology and leveraging it, it's entering the, you know, the con the cultural conscious more and more. I think mm -hmm. stuff like black mirror and, uh, <laughs> I don't know, like all sorts of sci-fi fantasies and movies that have come out kind of lean into that. And of course, it's almost always dystopian. Mm -hmm. But, you know, um, from the practical standpoint, the people that are on the ground trying to push this forward, the, almost all of the applications at first are purely like medical or meant to address like some harm uh, to, to people, like cures for cancer, cures for diseases. Mm -hmm. like that, right? There are a lot of those. Yeah. So I would say though, um, the kind of synthetic biology I work on though, isn't actually so much application focused. It is very common, um, especially because, um, you need, you know, money in order to be able to do something in science, right? <laughs> you need money to do anything in the world. Um, and so to be able to get money to do that, that oftentimes it's helpful to try to phrase the thing you're trying to investigate as a problem that is very real to people's lives, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that and it makes a lot of sense. You should probably do that. You should try to solve problems that actually affect human beings rather than just like whatever you think is in your head. Yeah. Um, but that being said, I actually work kind of more fundamentally on like a basic science side of things, um, kind of near molecular biology and these kinds of things. Um, and we really, I mean, I essentially try to make bacteria flash pretty colors under a microscope. <laughs> That's like the level of like synthetic biology there, there's certainly much more complex things that people are capable of doing and have done in the lab but like the level that you know i'm starting at with my own phd is is, is genuinely trying to build an oscillator inside of a cell um and essentially trying to make bacteria flash colors under a microscope with a period of about six hours you know <laughs> wait what and what is the point of this like why an oscillator what does that mean in that context yeah. So an oscillator in general just is any system that, you know, moves between states in a cycle. Um, you can okay. think like a, like a light switch or something that goes like on, off, on, off. So that's, you know, an oscillator. Um, the, the one that I'm essentially looking at is I'm trying, it's essentially a protein level oscillator, right? So what I'm trying to do is I talked about how DNA turns RNA into protein, right? And then basically the proteins come back around to the DNA and the RNA and everything else. And they do for the cell what the cell needs to be done, right? Proteins are the actors of the cell. Um, mm -hmm. The DNA is kind of like just for the most part, the information bank and the RNA is kind of like an intermediary. Uh, it, there, there's many more complications on top of that, but from a basic standpoint, that's true. Yeah. Uh, and essentially what I try to do then is design bits and pieces of the DNA as I would want them so that way, once they turn into RNA and then the RNA turns into protein inside of the cell, that it generates some function on the protein level um, that it wouldn't otherwise do had I not designed it. 
Uh, and in particular, the, the complicated thing is not to just be like, oh, I'm going to put a gene inside of a cell and have it just be expressed. I just want to make gene, right? People have been doing that for a very, very long time. Mm-hmm. But instead, you know, if I'm trying to build like a whole system inside of a cell, maybe something that can compute or something like that, you know, I'm going to need, you know, a clock pulse or something like that, right? You know, if you like think about it like a computer analogy um, and how you design those things. You build like, you know, a clock pulse and then every sort of clock pulse, there may be some logic that occurs. And so the computer is like the cell may be able to process information based off of like a clock pulse or something like that. Um, or just in general, you might want to be able to control um, protein levels dynamically for any number of reasons in cells. Um, but here's a, here's a great one, actually, um, of, of why you might want to build an oscillator. Um a, a separate oscillator our lab has already built called it's called the synchronized lysis circuit um and it's essentially a bacterial population level oscillator so instead of looking at like a single protein level you're just looking at um, a population um and the way it works is that the bacteria naturally are able to communicate with each other um using very tiny molecules that just sort of like go between their their membranes they're just like they're inhibited by the membrane but you know, they essentially can just move around and diffuse okay. uh, and kind of just spread out in the area. So the cells themselves sort of just make that at some level once when they're around. And when you basically have more cells kind of packed together, as a result, that molecule level goes up higher, right? And if the cells are more spread apart, then that molecule level is lower. So we say that's a quorum sensing molecule because it senses kind of the density of the cells in a nearby area. Okay. So the natural machinery in, inside of cells uh, is to use this to regulate metabolism in a biofilm. So when bacteria grow out um, and, and try to s- spread into a population, eventually they reach a certain size um, of like, you know, however many hundreds of thousands or millions of cells are inside of this biofilm um, where the ability to get nutrients kind of from the edge to the inside is pretty poor just because there's so many cells in, in the way. Um, so bacteria themselves are able to, to sense that there's so many cells by, by using this quorum sensing mechanism, right? This is molecule that builds up um, so much. And then they have a response to pause the metabolism of the outside cells. So when the inside cells are needing nutrients, essentially they pause on the outside so that way the nutrients are more available to the middle and that allows the biofilm to essentially grow bigger than it otherwise would if this didn't happen um okay what we do is we just cut out that whole machinery and we just use it as we would want it to be so instead of driving something that pauses metabolism we use it to drive a lysis gene and lysis means that the cells split open and they just die essentially um so as a result if you imagine that you're driving that instead of the, um, the, the metabolic pausing machinery, um, the bacteria themselves from a few starting seed cells in some culture, they're going to start growing, right? And they keep growing, they keep dividing until they reach a certain density where this quorum sensing starts activating. Once it activates, then it drives this lysis gene and a bunch of them die. And there's basically a few that by random chance and stochasticity, like all these other complications that we said, they just survive, right? They just so it's like a cell it's a self-balancing like cell population. Well, exactly. Except not just balancing. It, it actually goes through oscillations. It goes from like almost zero up to a really high density, back down to zero, back to a really high density, back down to zero. And it does this essentially for as long as we can make it. 
Um, There's a sort of Darwinian limit where eventually the cells evolve away the ability to do this, of course. Um, But we use that to grow those inside of tumors as a potential cancer therapy, because you can actually make an anti-cancer agent inside of a cell really well. The problem is it's actually very hard to get it out of the cell. Um, Also, if you destruct the cells, then that anti-cancer agent can be released. Exactly, exactly what happens. And also, um, there's there's many, many potential benefits of why you might want to engineer biology to do this instead of just injecting the drug yourself, right, with a a needle and a syringe. Um, But one, for example, is that the bacteria themselves only grow inside of a tumor because it's already immune suppressed. Your immune system is already not very active in that site. Otherwise, you know, it probably would recognize that there's a cancer there or something, you know? Yeah. Um, So as a result of the immune suppression, the bacteria can selectively grow inside of the tumors. So then they're producing this and all they're doing is releasing that drug in the tumor, inside of the tumor. And notoriously like chemotherapy, for example, has all these horrible side effects when you have cancer because not because it doesn't do what it needs to do, but because when you inject it into the bloodstream, it just goes everywhere in your body. And there are many cells that don't need the chemotherapy that receive essentially the chemotherapy and you have all these negative consequences. So one thought is you could build something kind of like a chemotherapy inside of these cells and it would be delivered only locally inside of the tumor. But you know, you might ask also like, why wouldn't you just inject that then with a needle, right? (laughs) You know, you could do something kind of similar. Um, So another potential benefit you can think of is that it continues to do this, right? If you go for medical intervention, say you do this for like once every two weeks or something, I don't, um, then that's just your one injection and you're kind of on pause and you're just waiting for the next one, hoping that it works. Meanwhile, oh, the population the is building up, down. building up, but, and then it's going to be released. And then the cycle will start. Yeah. So if you use bacteria though, instead, they're going to be generating it and then they lice and, and then it goes down kind of similar to how if you use a chemotherapy drug, eventually it will go away, right? Eventually it will be used up and it will go away. Um, But what's different is that the bacteria will then regrow and they'll do it again. So they'll get continuous delivery. And because it's only happening because the immune system is kind of suppressed in that area, in principle, it could happen and kind of regulate itself until the immune system activates itself and is capable of taking back over, you know? Um, And so you know, the, the field of using bacteria, especially this kind of bacteria for anti-cancer therapy is only a handful of papers. <laughs> it's a very nascent thing. Um, but you can, you can kind of see how there's like this kind of potential benefit. Once you can design biology, you can kind of build these oscillations. They inherently have some way of um, being able to be designed for, for other function that you can kind of think of, you know, whatever you can invent at that point. Um, you know, the, the nuances of why I'm trying to build a, a protein oscillator inside of a cell are kind of <laughs> small, right? No, no, I think, I think that's a good explanation. And I love, uh, I love technology and, and I think of technology and energy and like progress, these things, I think of them as kind of humans leverage the natural energy of nature. We find the, we figure out some insight about how it works and we leverage it in order to increase our capabilities in some way. And basically what you're talking about is like, you're not doing a ton of engineering. You're not changing every variable in this process. Instead, what you do is you're observing something that's naturally happening. 
there's this bacteria that detects when there's a clump of cells. And when it does that, it releases something in some process that's arbitrary. Mm-hmm. Take that over. And then you're saying, if I insert this, it'll kill the cells. And if I fill the cells full of a drug, then it'll release that drug and it'll self-replicate. And then the immune system can take over and kind of all these domino effects can happen afterwards if you, if you fully understand them. And so yeah, exactly. that's, that's pretty interesting. You're kind of just stepping in there in the middle and just changing one aspect of it uh, and taking it over. And, and really it's more, so I guess what I'm saying is it's less about the engineering and it's more about the understanding and the application and the context at which. Yeah. 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 And so, I mean, that that is like, you know, an application specific example, like sometimes um, what I, what I do is I just sit here and think about ways to model and describe these with like easy mathematics. Cause again, with some of the, like the goal is, you know, can I also build tools beyond just the concept of how like the the very limited understanding of like building an oscillator is like you have some an element that provides positive feedback and then you have some element that provides negative feedback and then there's delay between the positive feedback and the negative feedback so when the level is low right then the positive feedback ramps up and then that gets high and so the negative feedback becomes very strong but because there's a delay it doesn't balance it out exactly and so it, it rises up, then the negative feedback kicks in and, and that drives it back down, right? And then yeah, the so cycle kind of continues. There's stuff there, one of which is time, which is always confusing to bring into the equation. Or time right, or right. Sequen- sequencing of events. Especially delays. If you try to model something with a delay, um, it's, a, it's a very rarely understood or studied field of mathematics, for example, when you try to model something like that. Um, yeah. And so, you know, something I do is also just think about how can we model this simply? Can I like describe this using, using a good model? Um, can I simplify my assumptions? Can I, what the, what results from the model? Can I get something useful? Like maybe I can write down any sort of complex model that means nothing. Right. And I can simulate it in a computer and it can, and maybe it can match the biology exactly, but that doesn't necessarily mean I can work with it. Right. Um, but if it's that I can write a simple model down that maybe is close and approximates it well, and then I can just using some paper, you know, actually solve what's going on in the model and maybe compute like the period of the oscillation, like how frequently does this shift from positive to negative feedback occur, right? Um, that might be a relevant feature that I want to design, right? And from my model, I can then maybe just compute that quite simply and figure out what different parts are actually generating um and and influencing the period overall from from the model and that then helps me go back to when i design these things so then i could make the prediction that you know say the period i i in my model ends up being proportional to some promoter strength or something like that i could ask you know does the period when i change the promoter strength follow what i think the model says it should do um, and then I go into lab and I build a few of them and then I, I, I see, does it happen? Okay. I see and then kind slowly, of that circular process. Yeah. And slowly and slowly you get better and better tools to be able to describe these things. Um, so that way you don't necessarily need the very complicated nonsense that happens now where you have to, uh, nonsense is probably the, the wrong term, but it, Essentially, 
not very little can actually be derived just from your concept of how something should work in biology, right? You can try to design a, cir a genetic circuit um, and imagine how it's going to work. But I mean, you really, there's so much that's unknown. First of all, um, we, we talked about, you know, cutting out this quorum sensing system and just working with it, right? Well, the reality, a lot of those systems don't actually have to come from the biology that you're working with, right? Because all biology is kind of based in the central area of like DNA to RNA to protein, mm. um, a lot of the, these elements that we pull together to generate like the positive feedback element or the negative feedback element um, or the quorum sensing element, they all are, are from other species of cells. And they're like found to do that thing there. So what you do is you cut out the piece of DNA that codes for that. And then you um, put it into a different cell and then you just hope it does that, right? Hmm. But again, there's 10,000 other proteins in that other cell that you did. They might interact with it in complex and unknown ways. <laughs> and you sort of just assume that it doesn't. See, this, is, this, this reminds <laughs> me of my profession where I have a very specific error showing up on my console and I just mm -hmm. Google it and then pull up the first stack overflow, look at the first solution. And I'm just like, all right, copy paste, gonna see if it works. When really it's like, I have no idea the context of that solution. I don't know what the other person's code base looks like or anything. So it's kind of like a little bit of a, of a desperate attempt and you don't really know what's gonna happen because you don't fundamentally understand all the elements right. play. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's crazy. I mean, do you, um, is, this, is this very similar to CRISPR? Like you're talking about you're removing a piece of DNA and then you're putting it into so CRISPR is a perfect example of, of at least this what I was talking about because that was actually discovered in a particular bacterial species, right? Um, it is a protein, a natural protein system that bacteria use as a viral defense mechanism because what it does, the bacteria basically use the CRISPR system to recognize viral DNA, basically like small sequences of DNA that aren't in their genome. And since it's not in their genome, basically they figure out if it's in somewhere in, inside of the cell then that must be from the virus that's in the cell, right? Since it's not from the normal genome, right? And so it's, it's like this kind of immune system for the cells. The reason it's so big in biology is because people just figured out that that was useful. And so they just kind of cut it out of this bacteria that does this and they put it everywhere now. Um, we even work with them in E. coli now um, where we can put them in and then design the sequences that we want the, the DNA to go cut or the CRISPR to go cut in the DNA and you can use that functionally. Yeah, I love, uh, I, lo I don't know if this will work while recording. Oh no, it won't let me share screen. Oh, I have to change my settings, damn it. Anyway, I pulled up this, this graph of like how, uh, how CRISPR works. And it's just so funny. It just looks like, like a map that a kindergartner wrote for how to get around town or something. Like it's just a totally <laughs> incomprehensible, like, I don't even know if that's math or alien hieroglyphics, but it's, it's funny. Like it, you try and like, you go to the Wikipedia page for CRISPR or something like that. And you really get a sense for how complicated it is. But I mean, luckily because of the internet and all of the people that are communicating science, you know, I'm able to be exposed to something like CRISPR and get some kind of basic understanding, at least of what our capabilities are now because of it. But yeah, it takes, it takes a lot of years to understand this stuff, <laughs> I can tell.
Yeah, and, and so even when you're talking about like CRISPR, there's many, many different CRISPR systems. Actually, there's, I said this pulled from a bacteria. I think there are multiple bacteria that actually um, have these CRISPR systems. There's the one that was quite well known. It was called CRISPR-Cas9. Um, and they all vary. Like some of them, they all do like basically essentially the same thing. But some of them have three proteins. Some of them have two proteins. And understanding how and why that occurs, how does the cell regulate all of that? How do they interact and how does that kind of become complicated is like very, very difficult on just one system. And again, for cells and life in general, you're talking about tens of thousands of these all co-occurring. Yeah, no. And if you try to, um, if you try and ask why you keep on asking her why it's kind of just like the reasoning just because like the amount of information you uncovered becomes bloated and bloated more and more like mm -hmm. why does this particular uh crispr protein have you know like this differentiations between this one and like you might have to have a whole paper to explain why and that information might be totally meaningless for what you're trying to solve yep um i love the philosophical term uh who who's the guy's name it's something trilemma. Some person's trilemma. I forgot what it's called, but it's basically a philosophical idea that if you keep on asking why questions that you end up in three, one of three places. One is infinite regression, um, which is like why the chicken, the egg, why the egg, the chicken. And then another is like a, um, what would you call it? An axiom, like because God or because mm -hmm. the universe. And then the third one is, I don't remember what the third one is actually, mm. but either but way, those, and those two make sense. Yeah. Those two make sense. What, it, what is the third one? You know, it, it's actually kind of funny just that you came up with those two and that they're natural to you because there's actually a field of mathematics that is very related to trying to model stuff in synthetic biology and come up with these equations that I'm talking about called nonlinear dynamics. And essentially it's the study of in these models, um, what are the elements, or, or can we understand some elements that govern how they move through time, right? Dynamics. Mm -hmm. um, and essentially, the, the, you can kind of understand that most things end up somewhere stable, right? If things are moving through time, you're describing some model, they go to something stable, right? And that can either be a single point kind of like an axiom like it goes to there right and you stop and then that is the answer or it goes to an oscillating cycle so it's very yeah. interesting because those end up being the results of physical descriptions of how how you can think about these elements interacting same thing that occurs when you do it philosophically and try to ask you know the questions of why um ad infinitum right yeah and that's actually that's actually the third one is ad infinitum the third one is so it's either you get to circular reasoning, you get to God or an axiom, or you get to add an infinitum where it's just like, it's just an unlimited amount of information. And eventually the why question to answer it is the entire equation for the universe. Like you need to Dude, know everything to, <laughs> to know that. That ends up, you're actually, now that I think about it, that is the third possible outcome, I think, is that it's what's what people call diverging, which is that it theoretically goes to infinity, right? It just doesn't ever stop anywhere. 
<laughs> like added. So it literally ends up being the same exact thing that happens in philosophical questioning, I think, that, that occurs in mathematical descriptions of physical processes, as strange as that is. Yeah. And that's, and all of that goes to like, do you believe we live in an infinite universe or a finite universe? And it's just like, then you're just saying, what do you believe? Well, yeah. even though there's, I guess there's significantly more evidence that, you know, because of the microwave background radiation or whatever, that mm-hmm. big bang world seems real, you know, I'm not, I'm not so convinced. I don't know. Or I'm, a, I'm at least open. I'm open about it, but no, it's, it's interesting. And like this, when you're working at the level of biology, you're kind of, or really if you're working at the level of anything that's like super detailed or um, precise, even computing biology, chemistry, you bump into physics, you bump into the laws of physics and just kind of the reality. And then those fundamental questions, they, they, then some of the next questions are like, is the universe infinite? Do we have free will? Like the biggest philosophical questions are adjacent to a lot of these laws that you bump into just trying yep. to engineer or do things in the world. And, but I, uh, so lots of people like to separate out the tendrils of human thought into all these different fields. And of course it's important because you need to be able to understand them and understand how people think. But I mean, in reality, all of society, all of this science and knowledge and accumulation is, is literally just the constant concentration of knowledge, right? Um, one, one thought of like how society has developed, I think um, in like some sociological senses, is that society has continued to accumulate knowledge and concentrate it even more and more, right? So the amount of knowledge available to us now is more and greater than it has ever been before. But then at the same time, it's probably also not surprising that all of these things are so intricately connected because it's just, you know, I I think at the end of the day, it ultimately just ends up being human beings trying to understand the universe around them, right? And that, that they do this all through that same central lens of knowledge and understanding and trying to leverage um, reason and logic that, that our minds are capable of. Yeah, totally. I mean, it, it's, it's, that's some of the interesting stuff for me. And, and weirdly enough, uh, like I'm really interested in science now, but I only became interested in science almost through, I don't even want to say philosophy necessarily, but just philosophy, religion, creativity, like the things that are more vague and undefined, mm-hmm. uh, like coming through that way. And so for me, I love thinking about things on a fundamental level, but also just really, really keeping all of those questions in my mind and all of those opposing worldviews, um, you know, that are so opposing like God or nature or free will or uh, predestination or determination, determinism. Mm-hmm. Whatever. And so, yeah, those, those things are endlessly in, interesting and for me they actually inform they're just different filters or perspectives to look at things because the looking at things in a deterministic way if you like you believe in that then like we were talking about social media earlier and and algorithms and stuff like that if you look if you put on that deterministic lens then all of a sudden that area becomes much grimier (laughs) yeah it's very dark right (laughs) yeah it's very dark because it's like oh we're hacking humans in mass okay cool i mean I struggle with determinism, I think, at, at all as a concept, just to understand that the world was designed to be like this, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, sometimes that the thought that that could be, I mean, I understand uh, how it's accepted. You know, I grew up believing in it, 
Um, but I think the world just doesn't make sense in a lot of ways, right? And you just can't try to make sense of it. And if you try to force it, I think you end up sort of at an axiom, right? A statement of belief that you don't have any necessarily reason to believe in. Um, there's no guarantee essentially of it being true. Um, but but it provides, you know, a, a utility to the human psyche. It's it's comforting, right? It's um it's potentially supporting a, a lot of who you are, how you view the world. But, but, you know, again, there's no guarantee of it being true, right? You just are saying it. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like, if you don't have an, if you can't eventually, if you ask all the why questions and you're just falling down the rabbit hole and, and you don't have any axiom that you can land on, there's no ground, then philosophically or intellectually, you're just falling endlessly. You're falling forever. And most people aren't, I don't know, they don't want to do that. I think it's fun. <laughs> yeah, no, I think you it is definitely fun to, to go down, um, to, you know, an endless line of questioning and all that kind of stuff. But it is also at the same time, I think necessary for most people, especially people who do question to at some point desire comfort and resolution to that. Right. Uh, and so at some level, someone understands some axiom, right. Maybe for me, it's the, the world outside of me is, is real. Right. Like I accept that as an axiom and I'm not sure I can really you know, prove I don't live in a simulation, right? You know, I like, I can't come back to that. Um, but one of my friends, Pietro, uh, shared um, this, this concept of being like, you know, when we were talking about, okay, do you, a very fundamental questions about philosophy, mm-hmm. you know, like, do you accept the, the world is like real around you? And he, and he said, yes, like, you know, how could you not? It just slaps you in the face, right? Um, and I think that that's kind of, you know, a, a level of axiomatic comfort. Um, That's like, like well, brings. it's like Occam's razor almost. Right. It's just like the, it's just the explanation to say that the world's not real versus the world is real is just so much more bloated than the other explanation. So it's just, I should just save my time and throw it out. And like, yeah, exactly. I, I, I love that Occam's razor, like arguments a lot of times, but it's not a universal, it's not, you know, it's a hammer, it's a tool. It's not universally applied. Yeah, and it's certainly not a logical principle either, right? It, it, there's no guarantee of it being true. Um, but, um, you know, on some level in, in the great endeavor of philosophy, it, there's just simply no guarantee of anything being true uh, if, you, if you need to dive down to such a degree. Um, you know, at some level, you will always come up against either faith or a, an infinite series of questions, right? I think it's, you know, very difficult to try to say what generates, you know, objective truth um, in people outside of, um, you know, whatever they can come up with in their own minds. And, and that's part of the problem is every person's experience, the way they exant in the world is, is dependent on um, the, the unique flavors um, of life that brought them to that place. And everyone's so different. It's a, you know, an impossible system to describe a single cell, much less you know, a, a whole organism, much less people, much less the development of people through a long time. Um, and so if you ask, you know, is there a truth in the sense of um, like a very simple physical truth? Like what does the color red mean? Well, the color red means that if I measure the wavelength of the light in that spectrum, that it will be in some range that we call red, 
right? Like, yeah. like, and that is true. And I know that's true in a consensus sense that no matter who I am essentially in the world, I'm pretty sure that like, you know, I do that experiment and it's going to be true every single time, right? Um, there's just kind of no guarantee about the, the totality of the world. And there, you know, maybe there was just never meant to be one, right? You know, to a certain degree, maybe um, that's just how life um, being complicated, being an experiment, kind of finding itself um, placed into the universe um, is, you know, um, it, it's essentially itself an experiment in understanding, like what understanding is itself is a development of life, right? Um, we can only think of understanding reason and truth because of the mind and, you know, how it tries to process the world around us. Um, yeah. But so it's possible it's just the wrong tool. Like it's the tool the universe made, but is it also the tool for understanding the universe? Like that's, that sure would be nice. If yeah, I think so. it is though, actually. <laughs> I actually, I think that's one of the most beautiful perspectives on life um, is that it is the way in which the universe has come back around to know itself, right? To, to truly like the universe being its chaotic, seemingly physical, uncaring being that it is, has somehow exploded stars in the right way to create, yeah. you know, <laughs> life on a planet somewhere at some time. And then that was, that life was able to replicate and build up enough complexity, enough systems to get to the point of abstraction, to be able to ask that question then about itself is, you know, beyond a kind of beauty. It's something that, you know, we would say is beautiful of, a, of like a piece of art even, right? Of like, could, could, you know, could someone design something to work like that? Much less the universe sort of just gifting it, you know, to itself and to us. It's, it's very beautiful, I think. Yeah. And this is why I think for me and for a lot of people, like deep inquiry and interest into like science and philosophy and nature kind of brings one naturally to like, Eastern types of philosophy or Eastern types of thinking, because you're just describing and emphasizing the interconnectivity between us and how we, we think we're individual agents and we are to some extent, but you know, how much are we intertwined with everything else? And yeah. like, when you really, really begin to think about that logically, it's just, it's, it's a mind bending journey because it breaks down all of the kind of intuitive concepts we have about ourselves and our place in the world and our personhood and mm -hmm. our experience of time everything and and so yeah I mean I I definitely love that stuff and I, I agree that's a beautiful way of you know thinking about human beings and it's kind of like for me it just kind of invokes the sense that you know it's an amazing opportunity to be a person you know Absolutely. I'm not going to go, I'm not going to go be a synthetic bio biologist like you are necessarily, but I'm, I have the, the opportunity. I can go and delve into that stuff as much as I want, <laughs> figure out yeah. what I want and drop what I don't feel like learning about. And I, it's just like, it's a buffet of, of things that are endlessly uh, interesting and many of them useful. Uh, ho hopefully like that's the goal of engineering is to make stuff useful, but yeah, no, absolutely. Unfortunately, though, the universe does not request of us that we become happy, though. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, that, that was a side product of the way that we got here. But, you know, as long as 
sperm keeps meeting egg cell, you know, life will go on. And, you know, it, it doesn't so much care about whether or not you, you feel happy, whether the dopamine processes through your brain in the right way, or um, whether, you know, the electrical signals or whatever they are, um, even just the mind and it's its own being. Well, yeah. However it interacts, it doesn't ask you to actually succeed in your own life. But, you know, I think that- Well, it does in certain important. regards, but just not in a way that's perfectly aligned with happiness. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Like happiness itself is, you know, almost an accident. And the fact that we can understand happiness in this kind of meta level such that we can engineer ourselves around our own happiness or design and influence our lives to to shape our happiness isn't, you know, how happiness was probably developed, you know, like the way that happiness is experienced by, you know, many other life forms. They they have chemicals that in their brains that, you know, probably make them feel good and interact with them. But you know, they're not able to abstract themselves to the level of, you know, like, how is this working? You know, it's, it's meant to be a signal to you of like, does the behavior good? Okay, happy, like keep doing, you know, behavior bad, anxious, or, you know, anxiety, meaning warning, something could be coming in the future, you know, I should be responding and, and creative to, or, um, or be able to, you know, deal or prepare for whatever is coming in the future. Um, but then the the ultimate question of happiness in life and happiness overall, it has you know very little to do with the reality of how happiness is created in our minds, right? It's, yeah. The, the functional utility isn't so good at the the bigger thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, yeah, all of the chill and happy humans they got eaten. Sadly, we, <laughs> them. we wish they were here. It would be so nice. I know. Yeah, like if you if you had a, a biology that made you just purely happy all of the time, I don't think you would succeed. You know, there's um, I've kind of thought of this in the pandemic even um, because I had a lot of time to myself, uh, especially being in graduate school and labs had kind of shut down. You know, I was doing research um, computationally from home um, and a lot of other stuff, but I ended up with a lot of time to myself, and you know, to a degree. I ask myself what I did with my time and I oftentimes come up with the answer of being, I was complacent, right? I, I tried to find maybe some degree of happiness um, at any moment in time, right? And, and I ended up not really doing nearly as much as I would have outside of the pandemic or as I'm doing, you know, now or something. And, and, and that ended up making me dissatisfied, right? With the way I was, you know, experiencing that. Um, so I don't remember what I was talking about. <laughs> no, you're, I, I see, I know, right. I see exactly where you're going though. Um, because it's like, but what, yeah. oh, I remember now, sorry. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Okay, I was just going to say, um, but yeah, if you were happy all the time, like, and you tried to, to just meet those standards, you end up being complacent, kind of like how I ended up in, in a very small sense of probably, you know, pursuing too much instant gratification through the pandemic and ending up becoming complacent in my own life, right? Um, and, and and it just doesn't actually end up succeeding, right? The, the laws of evolution are, are not really laws of evolution. They're, they're just quite natural responses to reproductive systems. Any system that generates um, itself again, like life, right, reproduces, uh, is subject to the laws of evolution because they're just natural consequences that the things that reproduce faster become more prevalent, right? 
uh, so you're just going to be outcompeted if you aren't striving for that. Um, if you don't feel that that challenge, um, and also not to mention that the universe itself is is quite harsh. You know, you you must survive, right? You you it we're oftentimes in our very soft, very capable cities. Um, we we lose sight of the fact that the universe, you know, does not provide us with a society. It does not provide us with a, a support system or a net or anything like that. You had to survive on some level. Um, and it's quite nice that we do have these cities now to be able to not need to struggle to survive for most of us, most of the time. Um, we can just sort of kind of live these lives based on whatever our interests are, whatever, you know, our minds can, can come up with. But yeah. Happy people got eight. <laughs> that's, that's a summary for me, but I mean, yeah. Happy people got eight. No, I mean, I, uh, like, I totally agree with everything you're saying. I, I also push back a lot against, I think there's like a sentiment amongst people who, I want to say smart people. I don't think of myself as a smart person, but I just want to say people who are like, who are intellectually curious and try and have an answer to everything. I think there's like a sentiment of like, oh, well, if you're smart, you're not going to be happy. Or, you know, if you're truly understanding things, then you're not happy and really happiness is just like, what does it even mean? And that's not important. And, and to, I don't, I don't appreciate that attitude, you know, from coming from the creative side of things there, I think there's an infinite amount to appreciate and kind of, kind of circling back to Eastern philosophy. Uh, we've numbed ourselves to appreciation and gratitude in the, mm. in the pursuit of happiness in a lot of ways. And actually there are philosophies and methods of reattuning yourself with just the base nature of consciousness and, you know, na uh, the nature, mother earth itself and everything around you, the beautiful relationships you have, et cetera, et cetera. And like, for me, that's, there's truth there because you can, you can get to the experience, um, I don't remember where I heard this quote, but you can have the you can have the same experience staring at your shoe that you can, and then you can staring at a beautiful sunset, you know, over the ocean or something like mm -hmm. that. Like that's possible, and we've seen that from both from you know accounts from people, but also you can see that in in data. You can see that in brain scans. You can see mm -hmm. how people make this stuff happen, and so for me, there, there's truth there, and there's something to maybe happiness is the wrong word, but I think there's something to seeking peace and seeking like uh, regulation and balance um, across your life. Uh, and really a lot of that, that's not even quite happiness. That's more of just like avoiding misery. Yeah, no, <laughs> I, avoiding, I agree. Yeah, things that, that really should be avoided. And yeah, I mean, I've been feeling this like a lot lately because I've just really had a huge change in my life where basically almost all of my problems over the past three to four years have have gone away mm -hmm. uh one at a time and and really they're the big problems they're the real problems which for me was anxiety and and sadness and then also just being poor <laughs> and like having <laughs> absolutely no opportunities and being stuck right yeah and, and yeah. to some degree i've solved a lot of those problems i mean they're not permanently solved they never are but 
for me, they're, they're temporarily solved and I don't have to worry about the same things that made me worry and stress and, and be anxious about all the time. But then you get, you get here and you're kind of like, well, I, I realize the things that made me unhappy, all of the reasons for me to be unhappy are almost all gone. Like if I think about like, what, what is the number of things that made me unhappy across the week? Like mm-hmm. a year or two years ago or five years ago. And then if I, if I actually wrote those down and counted them, I could cross 90% of them off, you know, outside of like the traffic was bad. I, I don't know. Someone was mean to me. I stubbed my toe. And so, yeah, you, you remove those things, but my mind itself is still, it's attuned to the same I guess, really oscillations that you would say of like these chemicals or these different mental states. So your mm-hmm. mind doesn't catch up necessarily. You'll still find reasons to be unhappy. And, and so something I've been trying to do since I moved here to Utah and started my new job was basically just to try and be more intentional about, well, for one gratitude, but also catching myself when I'm getting stressed or anxious and just kind of reminding myself like, is this a real problem? I, I mean, just like, is this a real problem even at all? Mm-hmm. Or is mm-hmm. this just yeah. a, a t- a, a, an event, a one-time event or a regular event in life? And <clears throat> so anyway, is it not, you're not quite sure where all of that logic ends, but for me, I just, I think there's, there's something, there's something more to happiness, you know, a combination of taking away negative things, negative consequences for the long term, but also something more fundamental, you know, something more mysterious about, the nature of consciousness and our experience of reality. Um, but, you know, with, with all of that being said, uh, it's for most people, they're not at all at my level. And that's another thing I'm thankful for, or I guess you'd say our level of just, you know, the top of the hierarchy of your needs, we're fed and we have yeah. clean water and all of that stuff. And so, you know, we're the luckiest on the planet in that regard, but it's almost more of a calling to be grateful, maybe to make an impact. I don't know. I don't want to assert that on the people, but for me, that's something that I feel is like my responsibility to be grateful and to use my mind and my time for for something that I think is beneficial. Yeah. And I mean, that touches on a lot of thoughts I I have, Um, but just to get like, share some, Um, you know, we also oftentimes like forget exactly how the world works you know like these these cities and the metal in them doesn't come from nowhere right it comes from the earth somewhere and it's probably not our country right so the the breadth of human experiences is astounding right we like i like to just imagine that everybody lives uh like an american and that grows up in a suburban uh, place because that's how I live that's how almost everyone I've ever met has lived right um, but it's just simply not true uh, and really kind of understanding that your access to just resources and your ability to to be free with your mind is is even so uh, poor in the world uh, nowadays um, and even further beyond that um, you know I, I heard this statistic on the internet uh, so highly reputable source um, but the you know it said something like I think the estimate is that since the advent of civilization with Sumer like you know however many thousands of years ago 
um, t- a couple, you know, 10,000 years ago, maybe, um, maybe, maybe older. Not an we're, we're older than that. You're forgetting about Atlantis, bro. Oh yeah, you're right. You're right. right. But yeah, so that's like the, the advent of written history. Um, and that's, you know, from a, from a natural standpoint, I think the estimate is that that's 2% of all human beings have lived in the space after that. Yeah. Only 2%. There were 98% of human beings that walked around on the earth, you know, walking between caves. They literally like walked the whole world around and they saw three toed sloths eating from trees um, and all these other things. And yet through it all, I mean, I don't think the experience is, is really that different. You know, like what brings happiness, what brings satisfaction is really not that, that different. Um, if anything, you know, we, I think to a degree with, with the perspective of that, we were obviously very blessed with resources. And I think there's a, a huge pressure and a huge calling to be able to write some of the ails of the world. Um, I don't think it's constructed in a way that, that is beneficial for all of humanity. And I think, you know, we should really take a much better focus on asking, hey, can we really look out for everyone? Because I think we can. And it's not, you know, I think it's human beings are completely capable of it, but it's a matter of to a degree, you know, reshaping the world um, in order to succeed in that. Um, but um, I'm not sure that, you know, it, it's always such a blessing even to, to be in a city because you're, you're actually misappropriated from a lot of the systems that developed you to begin with right like why do we have such bad anxiety in these cities is because you know not enough sunlight not enough trees we're not walking around every day not getting your endorphins from exercise i mean we build these these enormous gyms that are literally survival simulations right like it's just like i'm not doing enough hard stuff with my body to survive so i'm gonna fake and act like i'm surviving on my own and just just to like look better or something, right? But also to you know hopefully uh, improve your um, your mental health as well and like your your you know access to endorphins and you know, those other things. But yeah, I, I think at times also humans can be um, quite misappropriated in, in in a in a city environment um, as the, the tools and systems that were meant to to help us survive just mm-hmm. don't work. They weren't developed for living in a city. Um, and, you know, of course, then there's the broader question of what, you know, like what really brings meaning to someone's life outside of their own um, selves. And, you know, you know, I would posit not much. Um, and if so, then, you know, there's not necessarily so much a, a wrong way to live. Right? There's no right way to live. There's no wrong way to live. But certainly at least that for me is enough to say that I, I can accept that everyone in the world will, you know, like live how they live. And I can almost respect the beauty of that, right? Like we're all human beings and we're all just going through life um, on our own. And um, if you can respect the humanity and, and the care of that, then that's enough to, to provide the impetus to me to be like, okay, so then we should try to solve these bigger issues. We should try to take care of the world. I think everyone should be equal. Um, at least from birth um, and equal status, at least in society's eyes uh, and the ability to access, um, you know, the basic fundamental needs and be able to express themselves fully. Um, and I, and I kind of agree with you as well, that like, I also, um, and especially the past, I think five years 
of my life really solved a lot of the things from that were just kind of given to me growing up the way I experienced the world um things like anxiety or, or depression um you know some ability with like work habits and, and these other things uh and you know being able to solve those came to me through a liberated mind through understanding through being able to to work with myself and interact with the things that generate feelings and the urges that drive me to take actions and, and being able to kind of craft that back into the, the experience and the mind that I want. Um, and so, you know, I think everyone should have access to that opportunity, you know, if nothing else, right. I know, you know, it, so many people are stuck in their circumstances and unable to change things, even from a, a physical standpoint, much less a, a mental standpoint. Um, yeah. and, and that, you know, I think, you know, you can look at that in the, in the context of the, the beauty with which we're all just human beings trying to, to, to pursue um, life and experience here on the earth um, and understand that, you know, the world is, is broken, but I think it's possible because these things all came from human beings. Um, I think it's, and so it's possible, I think, to, to change them as well. You know, the world was built by human beings, so it's not like humans can't fix it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. But um, yeah, I, I definitely resonate with that. Just looking at it for the reality that it is, and it's beautiful. And even in the destruction, there's something beautiful about it. Um, just the truth of it, the reality, and you know, it, it escapes words, really. Uh, yeah. At least for me, the way that I, I feel it. But kind of, kind of piggybacking on what you're saying about like, you know, we're living in cities, we're kind of unfit. Mm -hmm. We have all these technologies, all these resources that we're showering ourselves in supposedly to improve ourselves. But really that tech is far from where our brain is. Our brain is this old tech that just likes to lift the heavy rock in the sun. And, and, you know, you have a surfboard behind you. I'm sure that like going surfing (laughs) is probably one of the most joyful activities in in across your week and that's something that's is natural i mean yeah maybe our hunter gatherers didn't have surfboards but at least the engagement in nature uh engaging with your body being stressed out being in in community with other people like that's the stuff that's it like that hasn't changed we don't need uh all this other stuff we don't need sugar-coated candy-coated everything and wireless chargers and yeah like no kidding all the stuff we have and so I I guess for me I'm curious like with someone someone that that studies what you study um you know I come from more of the computing side of things I spend a lot of time thinking about the future but I have a certain slant and bias on how I see things so from like your perspective where what do you think the future holds as far as like how are we going to be interacting with technologies coming out of synthetic biology uh but then just the whole field of biology as a whole i mean people are talking about designer babies and there's like a lot of hot takes and lots of hot topics that people throw up and, and talk about but like practically what do you think the average person um is going to be seeing yeah so i will say you know I think the future is undetermined. And I think that, you know, it is also what we make. Um, you know, it's just made of human beings interacting and generating um, a future. 
Yeah. Um, but that being said, there is an unfortunate amount of inertia in the world where it just kind of moves the way it has been moving. And it seems to be that it will continue to do that for a long time, right? Yeah. Uh, and in that perspective, designer babies are an inevitability. I mean, they're already here. You can already go, um, you know, it, you don't necessarily have a designer baby in the sense that it is designed, but you can, um, at, at present, if you have enough money, you can have um, 10 embryos fertilized in vitro. They'll sequence the genome of all the embryos before they even grow up. And then you can ask, okay, so this one has blue eyes, this one has green eyes, this one's a male, this yes. one's a female. Like what combination? So you do can you do want? it in the sense of you can select the biological material and then assert what, you know, those embryos will basically turn into. So you can do it in that sense, but, and then working on it to the next level to where, hey, we're going to take your actual or and maybe create an embryo. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, uh, to be prepared for, for me and people, I, I, it's going to happen. We're, we're going to achieve that success. I, I honestly don't even think it's an impossibility to imagine that, you know, it, there's a, a near future wherein things like a human genome is capable of being designed. Um, the scale at which we're able to work with these and, and rapidly move through them. You know, I talked about how complex these systems are and, you know, chemistry and physics took 20 or 30 years to get through. Um, whereas biology has been around since, you know, in its heyday since the sixties. Um, and that's been 20 years, but we're actually making a ton, a ton of progress. Well, it's I, the I, system is so hard that it takes so long. Um, totally. And, and one, one, uh, one example I do actually know about like mapping out the genome when they were mapping out the genome, it was like the first few years they had made X amount of progress. They had made like one, two or 3% progress. And then yep. a bunch of narrow-minded people, like they projected that forward and they're like, okay, it's going to take us a hundred and something years to fully sequence the human genome. And we ended up doing it seven years because we were improving at an exponential pace. Like that first yep. step was one to 3% and the next one was six, 12. And then we just did it as an exponent. And that's how a lot of these technologies are moving, which fall yep. completely outside of our intuitions. Yeah, and, and that's probably one of the best things to take away from, you know, modern history is that, you know, I think the, the real advent of technology that will change life meaningfully uh, is probably hard to predict. Um, and, and, you know, it, and it will just suddenly arise. There are more people in biology than there have ever been. Um, there are more talented people just in the world. There are so many billions of people in the world who are so incredible at what they do. Um, and, you know, who knows what the future truly holds? Um, does it hold mastery over biology? Maybe, um, maybe not. Uh, certainly, we have developed incredible tools to work with the genome which is essentially the basis of biology, right? Because if you can change the genome of a cell, um, you can dictate its fate. Even if you can't predict it yet, you can dictate it, right? By changing it. Um, and so I, you know, if there is cells being made of chemical molecules and chemical systems alone, um, though not fully characterized and not understood, you know, I, I think it's a definite future wherein um, you know, we, we achieve mastery over these things as opposed to like theoretical physics where, you know, you're asking string theory, is this the next thing, you know, 
the question is like, are we pushing up against the boundary that we, we don't know about, right? It, who knows what's going to happen in the future? Whereas in biology, um, it's sort of in the middle. It's sandwiched in between things we do understand. We understand when things get much bigger, there's like tissues and stuff like that going on and, you know, poorly understood as well. But well, like we understand anatomy here. We understand chemistry here. But a lot of the stuff sandwiched in between is where the it's complicated. Just, it's really complicated. There's a lot of interactions. And so it's just hard. But, you know, it almost seems like an inevitability, right? Because it just seems like you just need to work a little bit harder, come up with a little bit better tools, um, and then you'll, you'll achieve that. And then honestly, who knows what human beings are capable of doing once that happens? Because everything we've ever understood about life has been somewhat dictated by the laws of evolution, like the inevitability of the universe, the inevitability of death, the inevitability of all of these different things. And at the point where you have that level of understanding and control of biology, you know, you could change potentially anything, right? Um, now, how much would human beings change? Who knows? And that's also, of course, like potentially very far off. In the near future from synthetic biology, I think we're going to see a lot of cool things, I think, very soon. Um, people integrating technology, um, you know, into biological tissues, um, tissue engineering in general is also exploding um so uh, and then being able to design and work with simple elements um in a person um being able to manipulate uh what exactly kind of you know like some of the genetic characteristics not everything about a person is determined by the genetics um there's the common debate in biology of nature versus nurture uh and you know but some things are determined by nature and we're rapidly approaching the ability to, um, we could already, as I said, we already have like full mastery to essentially to be able to um, edit these things. Although there are some issues with off-target effects because the genome is too big, but uh, we essentially can do what we want in there. And, and it's more a question of knowing how and what is, is, is a bit much right now. Um, and then beyond, of course, I, I, I think you're more likely to, or what people are likely to expect from the near future though is still nascent to what people might think of um because we're still talking about changing a gene fixing you know your fibromyalgia or something else like that um sorry not fibromyalgia fibromyalgia is not genetic based maybe it is um, i just don't know uh, about it. i was thinking of sickle cell uh, anemia yeah sickle cell anemia is a great one i was thinking of cystic fibrosis um but yeah um, yeah, all these different diseases that we, you know, know are genetically based. Or like, we'll be able to, I think, fix those very soon, um, as well as um, being able to, to design simpler life forms. And that's kind of where I see my own progress working towards, um, is, you know, being able to try to design a bacteria to do something that you want it to do, as opposed to necessarily needing to engineer a whole living system. Um, but it's honestly, it's hard to tell uh, when we'll just kind of move on. And it's hard to tell what level of complexity lies in between a bacteria and a, and a plants. I mean, there's a little, I mean, we know a lot, but I, I just mean to say like, for the, the purposes of designing life, um, there's so much unknown. <laughs> so it's hard, it's hard to predict. Certainly, uh, bacteria will be used for lots of future applications. There's someone uh, in my lab who who just got a job and, and what he does uh, is directed evolution to try to eat plastic. So he, he just tries to make and uh, direct 
uh, the evolution of bacteria to try to consume plastic with the eventual end goal of being like, oh, maybe we could, you know, dump these in the ocean and we'll just eat all the plastic, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and so things like that, I think, can be solved in the, in the near future. Yeah, totally. I mean, if you imagine, if you imagine an alien species, it's truly advanced and can travel between solar systems and stuff like that. You imagine like, what would their technology be like? Like what, for me, I don't imagine like mega ultimate factory supercomputer, you know, waste exhaust. I imagine that they just have such an understanding and such an alignment with nature and energy and the resources that they have at their disposal and leveraging all of that and just the most minimalistic, basically what nature just does already. Like nature, what is some kind of law of physics, but basically like the shortest path will always be taken or the most efficient path mm -hmm. will always be taken. Like, mm -hmm. you know, so, so basically that, like that's where I see it is like efficiency. Like you're talking about recycling, but even using nature to recycle and integrating like it's integrating more of our selves more more of ourselves with nature with technology it's all just kind of merging together yeah and that's that's how it seems from my perspective and like i know that um like me and probably a lot of other people were the the things that you want to get out of biotech are the reasons that you pay attention to it you know, like for me, I think a lot about my lifespan and my health. Mm -hmm. And so like, uh, I'm a fan of David Sinclair and I'm sure lots, lots of other people are. He, he wrote the book Lifespan recently and he's trying to study this at a fundamental level to mm -hmm. solve just aging essentially. And mm -hmm. then, you know, like it, if that's on the menu, um, you know, and I know uh, there's people that think that they can think they're within escape trajectory they call it basically which is they're young enough or they're going to be able to live long enough to where they think they're going to catch the trend of technology that's going to increase their aging to the point to where they'll never die or yeah. they can preserve their brain um even if their body does mm -hmm. decay eventually and so those types of thoughts i don't i don't hear too many people talk about it but for me, as we're, you know, like we were talking about the sandwich, we've got like anatomy, our understanding of the body, just physically, like what's here, our understanding of more basic physics and then chemistry and what's sandwiched in between. The only question is, are we going to understand what's sandwiched in between those? Be and the implications of once we truly understand, like if we really do understand it, that we can make falsifiable predictions within these types of complex systems, you know, if that's the case, then yeah, it's aging is going to be solved to the extent that it's possible in the universe, which seems, you know, <laughs> pretty, yeah. and it, pretty substantial because it's just it, information it, preservation. Well, not even beyond that, there's examples in life of living systems that don't age, right? Or age yeah. almost extremely slowly to a degree that we can't even tell. Right. Like so the there's no, crocodiles. um, yeah, I'm not sure exactly in the case of a crocodile, but I believe there's a, there's a, a worm that I think as best we can tell just does not have any concept of aging. Um, it just grows up and then it, it just lives. It keeps a steady state. And it, rep it replicates at some point in time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
And there's, first of all, you know, it begs the question, well, then why do we age, right? I think that there's actually something very natural um, about death. It's essential actually to development of, of evolution. Things must die. Um, so that's probably, you know, like why we age, but it, in a sense, it almost provides us then a benefit, right? The, the broader perspective of humanity is that, you know, us primordial humans for the, from the perspective of 2000 years in the future do die. So that way we're not the, the unevolved human beings that will come in the future. Um, yeah. But, you know, at some point in time, I think it is likely though, that we will escape that fatality um because again the the example of it is is observable in the world around you you can just look out and see it um and so i don't know i'm not sure when it'll occur um you know everyone likes to have their own prediction Uh, it's it's a little difficult to actually know um why we age that's still kind of an open question to a degree, um, which we also do study in my lab, interestingly enough. Um, but, um, well, we study, you know, yeast cell aging, but you know, essentially that's oh, yeah. going towards the question of why do human beings age and, and why does everything age? Um, and, um, what was I saying? <laughs> yeah, we, we, we uh, study why we age, we eventually will escape that. But it's, it's, I mean, at least what I, what I understand is that the understanding isn't fully there. We're still like, okay, maybe we understand exactly why we age. We understand the exact functions and how they happen across the body, uh, body. but then to go in and engineer something to s- suppress that or, or stop it or heal it, like that's a whole other different problem yeah if we even can understand which we we're not certain that we can we're not certain that we're capable of it yeah so i think it's um almost certain that we're capable of understanding i just think we don't understand um exactly why we age um but i mean there are again at the end of the day if biology is composed of chemistry essentially then you know like you have the genome you have all the elements there you know something must be occurring to to stop the system from doing what it would otherwise do and as a result since something is occurring that's something you can pick up on right you can observe it it's just about designing the right experiment we're trying to look in the right place to find it um and you know i think probably some of the bigger challenges have to do with you know we're able to just a the complexity problem in biology you know there are many different directions along which um things can age conceptually um it's not just like a, a one-dimensional concept of like getting older like like we think i think time progresses yeah. um but but i think it, it's an almost inevitability though that everything that we've investigated about aging there are many like kind of molecular mechanisms in the cells um they, they do seem sensible and understandable and you're and you're absolutely right that it is another challenge totally to figure out if we can fix that but i'm not even sure that the concept of not aging or being eternal, escaping the concept of death even requires biological um, methods or manipulation. Because, um, you know, the, first of all, people, you know, it's, it's 
maybe an open question of like, what is a person, right? But maybe you just need to have the right kind of brain scan done and can digitize that. And at some point in time in the future, someone could recreate it, right? Or maybe um, if you're not so attached to the concept of yourself as a, uh, as, a as like the, the stories by which you tell yourself and the, and the experiences by which you've lived, but rather you have some sort of concept of the self of being like, uh, it's me as I was born. Um, you know, that I think is an almost certainty. You could, anybody alive could, you know, live eternally in that sense now. All you need to do is probably sequence your genome. And, you know, at some point in time in the near future, we're probably going to be able to synthesize those and put them into cells. And then, you know, you could regrow someone with an arbitrary genome, in the, you know. And so... Well, that, that makes me think about the thought experiment of, like, the portal... I think the Star Trek portal or something like that. Like if like the idea of how it works is that it, it completely scans the, the exact state of everything in your body, you know, brain signals, chemicals, cells, everything. And then it just rebuilds it at the location. But then when you get in the teleport teleporter, you get vaporized and then another exact copy of you is created. So then at, at another place, so then it's like, is that you? Is that really yeah. like, what's the you-ness that's even there? And of course that that's a philosophical question, but it's like, yeah, like people, lots of people, uh, Ray Kurzweil and all, all the singularity people, like they talk about, you know, that we're going to, we're going to scan our brains and we're going to preserve them. And that's how we're going to live forever. And we're going to merge mm -hmm. all those scans into a hive mind and, and live happily ever after. Um, <laughs> but I don't know. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not as convinced about that. I think that like, you know, we're talking about biology, but yeah. then when you go to the brain, I think it's a totally different, uh, beast. It's a totally different thing to understand because there's, well, I, I don't want to say there's more interact or different kinds of interactions fundamentally than there are the rest of the body, but just the way that like, uh, electricity comes into play into your brain and the complexity of which neurons communicate i mean it's it's a totally different thing to map out and understand but maybe i don't no. know i'm full of shit because we already have fucking brain scan things you can put on your head that show yeah state live and see i think though this is actually a pretty common and colloquial misunderstanding of like the state of brain scanning i think you're actually right about the fact that it's m far more difficult than you know people probably actually talk about it, I don't think I was talking about earlier even um, because um, in like an MRI voxel um, I, I like best technology right now um, voxel being like a uh, like a pixel as a picture element voxels like a volume element it's like a 3d pixel right um, you're still talking about like on the order of a hundred neuron axons uh, in the in a single volume element so like the exact reality like you you still aren't measuring and you still can't really detect you, you know the exact state by which those things are connected because you can only measure a hundred of them grouped together at a time at best right um no that may or may not matter so much because there's this thing called field effects in um neurophysiology where it, I mean, it definitely will matter if you try to actually recreate a person. But, uh, you know, there, there are interesting phenomena in neurophysiology where, like, if an if one axon fires, right, 
it's like an electrical current running on a wire, right? But then, as I said, inside of each parcel, there might be a hundred axons kind of bundled together, running down together, like a, like a bundle of wires, right? Um, and so in electrical engineering, it's, it's pretty well known that if these things kind of just sit together, the electrical occurrence in one wire will start to generate electrical responses in another wire um, if it's not shielded properly. And that actually happens in your brain, um, like essentially as a part of how it works. So axons will fire together in these kind of group bundles to generate these larger waves across your brain um, when they do that. So, you know, there is some element of like, oh, maybe you don't need every little detail to, in order to be able to generate a human being. But certainly we have no idea of what in the brain is essential to be able to recreate a person. We, we hardly understand how the brain works. We don't understand how the brain works, actually, I should say. And, and the things we do understand, we hardly understand. Um, mm. But, um, you know, it, it, you don't want to be you don't want to be the person in history because there's all these examples. It's like it's impossible, you know, or it'll never happen or it'll take 100 years. Like I, I'm always hesitant when I say stuff like that. But at the same time, I have just kind of a, a humility in the face of what seems like a lot of hubris around these these concepts. But I mean, yeah, I think I tend to lean more on the, the side of the hubris of being like, ah, everything is an inevitability with enough time. <laughs> right. Which is probably yeah. not true. But um, but certainly a lot of the future has come so quickly i mean we're only 60 years between the advent of an airplane to the landing on the moon which is insanity yeah. and we're only you know 60 years off that so who knows yeah i mean i just hope for the sake of humanity and for my own mental health that the next 10 years in uh, biotech development is more of just like Hey, you know, we're, we're utilizing CRISPR for some basic, basic usage to heal viruses. And we're doing like the, the biosynthetic stuff, like engineering bacteria, like we're doing that with some simple applications to solve some specific diseases. And we're starting to discover more and we're branching out and we're being iterative and being careful. You know, I, I hope that's what it's like, but the pessimistic idea is that it's going to be an innovation explosion. It's going to happen too fast in China. There's going to be crazy experiments and, you know, all of a sudden we're going to be launched into a new phase and we're going to have to figure out everything in hindsight as all these decisions are being made and technologies are being unleashed. Like that's, that's the fear, but you know, uh, I think that's an inevitability because of human hubris. <laughs> You just can't control everyone. And, you know, it is nice. I, you know, I sit inside of, you know, an academic institution and it is very nice to sit there because you can feel like that's not an inevitability because we're all very careful and we sit in institutions such that we have these careful rules to kind of prevent that. Mm -hmm. um, somebody's going to do something. I mean, all these biohackers are out there. Yeah. I, I, it's actually really interesting. Uh, one of my roommates, she uh, met somebody through a friend who was kind of interested in like some Synbio stuff. She said she recognized some of the words that I would say. And she sent me a link um, to his stuff. Um, I pulled it up and it was a GitHub link, a GitHub repo of this guy trying to put together 
computational tools for synthetic biology for the explicit purpose of making it like open source biohacking available. Yeah. And, you know, I believe a, a lot of like open source coding and that kind of stuff. I'm not sure I believe in open source and stuff, synthetic biology. Um, so I like looked at it and I was like, you know, I could make some contributions. Like I, like, this is like the stuff we work on and like all these things. And I was like, you know, I think I'm just not comfortable <laughs> sharing how yeah. to do this stuff with, you know, it's not that hard to figure out if you like read the right papers and um, can get access to that. You know, anyone can get access to papers if they try hard enough for sure. But it's just like, do we want to pack, is this, do we really want to package this up? And, and allow, you know, like anybody, um, Joe Blow to go play with biology and then create the next coronavirus pandemic, you know, it's, it's going to happen. It, it's going to happen. Um, is my, is my thought. <laughs> but, well, I'm, uh, yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's good to hear that because, uh, you know, I want to I want to be ready for that reality as long as, along with the other kind of implications of technology that are coming down the pipe. Um, yeah, I honestly I'm I'm not sure how many more generations we really have in us, to be quite honest. I, I think that the way that society is progressing, the way that it's almost an inevitability that pandemics and epidemics will get worse. Our abilities of biology will become demonstrable. And if we can't develop tools to solve problems faster than people can create them either by accident or certainly, certainly by malice, that will happen as well. Um, you know, there, there might not be that many generations left, to be quite honest. Yeah. No, I mean, I, uh, I think me and Josh actually have an unreleased, or I think the recording got corrupted corrupted episode about um existential crises oh i keep i keep my ear to the ground with this stuff and i'm curious about it but at the same time i'm kind of a i'm i'm kind of an optimist i i like to think Mm. of myself as a rational optimist but you know for us to uh if we actually are capable of taking on this this boom of technology these large-scale problems that are new and and it's not normally our responsibility if we're actually able to take these on you know i think there's going to be a a boom in humanity and actually a an extreme period of growth because you know these things coming forward they're dangers they're the very things that can destroy us but they're also the very opportunities in which we could leverage into becoming a spacefaring civilization and for me like that's that's the future I want to invest in, basically. Like that's my thinking. It's interesting. Have you ever okay? Do you this is another Netflix reference? I just watched this show called Biohackers, actually. It's this German show about synthetic biologists doing interesting stuff. Oh, I've seen one of the Netflix biohacking shows. I, I don't think it's quite that one. Yeah, so there's two, I think. There's unnatural selection, which is that's, the documentary. That's what um, about, yeah. about people kind of doing crazy stuff and the guy that injects himself with CRISPR no reason <laughs> no reason <laughs> it's insane the guy is, yeah anyway um but um beyond that there was um there's this other show called biohackers and it posits this interesting point because one of the guys working in the lab um of this like main professor at this German university, um, 
has Huntington's disease. And essentially he works on weekends and evenings um, after doing his graduate school work to try to solve Huntington's disease for himself, right? Essentially he's doing his experiments and trying to do this synthetic biology to try to try to, try to do that. Um, and his roommate best friend is like a sociologist. And he just makes the very astute observation of being like, because uh, in a conversation he's approached, oh, I mean, you know, it's really great what this professor is allowing him to do, right? All these other things. And, and he makes the astute observation of, no, actually it's, it's horrendous because she attaches her himself or herself to him in a way that he's dependent upon her for survival, right? He is successful in synthetic biology. He's pushed and he's driven and he produces the best work out of everyone else uh, in the program because he's literally dependent upon it for survival. It is being held over your head. And, and he and then makes the following observations classical, which is like, yeah. And so, you know, it's great for him, first of all, that, you know, he is brilliant. He's able to do this, but it's not necessarily like a fair kind of perspective on how, you know, labor relations essentially should work. He doesn't say it like that, but um, how labor relations should work. And beyond that, once he succeeds, you know, what's going to happen is the professor is going to get the intellectual property license for that. And there's going to charge a million dollars a treatment. And so the, is the next guy with Huntington's going to be able to afford that? Um, and, you know, kind of puts into this perspective that sometimes as you develop this technology to try to help bless the world, you end up just accidentally sacrificing yourself to the productivity that generated the technology in the first place, right? Mm. And I think we're going to see that with space travel with an almost certainty. It's not like space travel is easy. Um, and certainly life on another planet will be a huge challenge. It will take so much effort um, and human uh, trial and determination in order to succeed in that endeavor. And for the end goal, that probably will not benefit the people who achieve it, right? Like, I mean, how much of the, how much of America was built by slaves or by people, you know, who were poor after the New Deal um, looking for jobs and how much of it benefited them? You know, how much did they really benefit? And he's like, not nearly as much as the rest of us or whoever else is on top at the time, right? So, but the know. thing is we're, we're explorers. So we're going to do it. That's, that's the thing is there, there will be people that want to sign up. There will be people that want to go. I mean, practically, I agree with you. Like if we start launching humans out into space and we're going to spend hundreds of years terraforming other planets, like, yeah, it's not directly going to benefit me, of course, unless I live forever, but, <laughs> but, um, but, you know, it's more of just for me, the idea if we can get to a point to where things are in well and good balance on earth and it's actually, it starts to make sense. Like, all right, now we can look out. Now it makes sense to, to really go out in mass and begin to start doing operations outside of our own planet. For me, like that's just more of like a sign of us getting through this, this phase. Are, are you familiar with the Kardashev scale? Yeah. Yeah. So, so for me, um, I, I think it's like, of utmost importance and really the existential question for us is if we get from a type zero civilization to a type one civilization 
and if anyone hasn't heard mm -hmm. of Kardashev scale, it just basically means it is type zero through five to basically describe a civilization. And it describes them using the factor of how much energy are they able to harness, essentially, or take advantage mm -hmm. of. And so a type one civilization is a civilization that can fully harness the energy of its planet in, in a sustainable way. That's kind of a, a given. And so currently we're not even really at that state. We're at type zero. And so for me, it's, negative it's one. About, <laughs> yeah, maybe negative one. for me, it's about getting to type one. Uh, and, you know, that's it's one of the reasons I'm really into into Bitcoin, because I think that that's an, an immense opportunity moving in that direction. But just in general, you know, I, I kind of have this optim optimistic bent um, where it's like I'm not ignoring a lot of these problems. Uh, like these huge existential problems. I, I find them kind of interesting, which is actually weird, but you know, uh, but I rather, I think that us conquering them, us not being killed by them will make us stronger and will kind of be a point to launch off into a whole different, really a whole different game for what civilization mm. becomes. Um, but you know, all, all of those are, what do I know? <laughs> you know, humility has got to be a part of it, but nonetheless, um, I'm, I'm absolutely about to pee myself because we've just been going straight here, but oh yeah, <laughs> I, I think I don't want to take too much more of your time. I think we're like two hours, something deep, but I mean, <laughs> having a nice so conversation on, wait, oh, what? yeah, it's having a nice conversation, you know? Oh yeah, <laughs> for sure. Um, but yeah, I guess any, uh, any parting words, any shills or final thoughts you have? Any shills or final thoughts I have? Um... Oh, and I haven't even mentioned, this is, this is the Austin takeover episode. The Austin takeover episode. Yeah. It's yeah. Oh, dude, you're right. I didn't even, I didn't process what you meant by that, but you're totally <laughs> right. It is just Austin's. Yep. Nothing like okay. having the uh, most average name of 1995. <laughs> yeah, <exactly>. <laughs> <laughs> I was born in 94. I don't know if it was the most okay. popular then, but okay. it was pretty popular. <laughs> oh, man. Why, why did the name Austin become so popular? Who knows? I don't know, man. Crackers? Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> I like to think it was crackers, right? That'd be nice um yeah i don't think i have any final thoughts necessarily you know i like to think that hopefully um in the future you know we don't end up just escaping the planet after we destroy it in order to try to survive somewhere else under the guise of some you know capitalist who brought us there but you know it's hard to it's hard to see a future necessarily without it but i don't think so much that it's necessarily something to to fret over uh, because you know we're all just human beings at the end of the day and we're all trying to do what we can do um i think you should advocate you know for yourself in life um and advocate for the things you care about i think that's like essential and you should try to be a part of change in the world but ultimately um we are also you know just trying to make it right yeah. <laughs> we're all also trying to to not be depressed in our cities and just trying to um 
be happy and productive, find meaning in our lives, find meaningful relationships and uh, continue the tradition of humanity. And I think that's a beautiful thing that, you know, despite our existential talk before, we can just rest in the beauty and the enjoyment that we can get, right? Life is, right? Life is beautiful and, and it's an amazing gift and it's incredibly hard, but, you know, it's exist or not exist, right? And you only have the, the question and the, the, the struggle just because you exist, right? Um, and yeah. so you might as well seek out purpose and meaning in that. Totally. No, I, I, I totally agree. And that's a, it's a beautiful, positive thought to end on there. Better than existential dread. So yeah, <laughs> but, <laughs> there's enough of that. In my head. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for coming on, man. It was fun. Yeah, totally. It was fun. Nice talking with you. We should for talk sure. more. We will. We'll, we'll have, uh, we'll bring you on in the future. That'll definitely happen. Cool. That way I can talk to Josh too. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Thanks for listening. Yeah.